This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Thank you for listening to our program. A couple of interesting things here. One is you need to ask yourself the question, right? We all know what the statute of limitations is. Statute of limitations is the, the time in which you need to be charged with a crime, right? With the exception of murder, just about every crime, including violent crimes, have a statute of limitations. Now, why is there a statute of limitations for horrible, violent crimes like rape, whether we're talking about uh, statutory rape or uh, other types of more violent and aggressive rape? The, The reason that there's a statute of limitations on all sorts of violent crimes, including sex crimes, is because the thinking is that evidence deteriorates over time. People's memory is less accurate. Physical evidence may deteriorate. So statutes of limitations for all crimes, including violent crimes, they're designed to protect a person from being prosecuted for a crime after this evidence has become less reliable over time. Make sense? Okay. Now, one area where there's a a little bit more flexibility in terms of going after someone for crimes that they committed a long time ago is civil cases. Remember a while ago we were talking about that case involving Bob Dylan purportedly sexually assaulting someone, I think, in the 1960s, right around there. But in any event, uh, we're talking about this now because yesterday a California jury has found that Bill Cosby sexually assaulted Judith Huff at the Playboy Mansion in 1975 when she was a teenager. Now, uh, Judy Judy Huff, who's now 64 years old, was awarded half a million dollars after four bizarre days of deliberations. And although Cosby's been accused of uh, sexual misconduct by 60 women, this was the first civil case to reach trial. Cosby denies that a sexual encounter ever occurred. He did not attend the trial in Santa Monica at all. So according to the verdict that came out yesterday, jurors believe that Cosby intentionally caused harmful sexual contact that he reasonably believed Huth was under 18 and that the actor was driven by abnormal or unnatural sexual interest in a minor. 
Now, no question about it. Anytime a jury says that you committed a sex act with a minor, even if it's uh, 50 years ago, it's a big setback. Okay, and this is certainly a big setback and further degradation of Bill Cosby's reputation, who was freed just about a year ago from prison. But here's what's interesting. His spokesperson, Cosby's spokesperson, is calling this verdict a huge victory. This is a quote from Andrew Wyatt. This was a huge victory for us because they were looking for millions of dollars. That amount, meaning the amount that the jury awarded the uh, plaintiff here, that amount will not cover the cost of legal bills, and we will be appealing that matter. However, Mr. Cosby will not be paying punitive damages. It's a very interesting case. Jurors began deliberating on Thursday. On Friday, a note was sent to the judge about a, quote, personality issue between two of the jurors that was making deliberations difficult. By the end of the day, jurors had answered eight of the nine questions on their verdict form, but they were stuck on whether Cosby acted with malice, oppression, or fraud, which would then trigger punitive damages. One of the jurors was then excused due to a prior commitment that the judge had approved. An alternate juror took the person's place, and the group had to then start from scratch on Monday, and the jury remained stuck on the same question. Obviously, what they came up with was that Cosby was not culpable for these uh, punitive damages. So this young woman at the time, now she's 64, Judy Huth was 16 at the time of the incident. She testified that Cosby molested her inside a bedroom and forced her to perform a sex act on him. She said she met him when they were filming, when he was filming a scene for the movie Let's Do It Again, which I've never seen. I thought I knew Cosby's films pretty well. I've never heard of that. Let's do it again. He invited her and a friend to the Playboy Mansion Cosby was a regular there, as he was apparently friendly with Hugh Hefner. And according to Huth, she was scared when a then 37-year-old Cosby got her into a bedroom at the mansion. Um, And then she alleges some very serious stuff. He tried to lean me back. He was leaning me back. And then he tried to come at me and kiss me. Then he put his hands underneath my belly button where my high pants were, and he tried to put his hands down my pants. I was freaking out and told him I was on my period. And then at that point, he put his hands on, uh, he put his, he put her hands on his genitalia. So Cosby's lawyers called Huth's story a complete, there's a quote, and utter fabrication. And they questioned why she stayed at the mansion for hours after the alleged assault. Well, I don't think that's very suspicious because Look, different people react differently to every manner of sex crime. You're assaulted by someone, especially by a big star. You might be in shock. You might be paralyzed. You might be thinking about what the responsible thing for you to do is. I don't think the fact that she stayed there is evidence that she made this up. They also took a shot at her credibility as who initially got the year of the attack wrong. Now, that's interesting. And that is precisely one of the reasons why we don't have uh, why we have statutes of limitations in criminal cases. And I'm wondering here. A couple of things. One, I think it's it goes without saying that Bill Cosby is a total creep. You know, uh, whether he is criminally guilty of sexually assaulting women, whether he's civilly guilty of sexually assaulting women. It's clear that Bill Cosby has a very creepy vibe to him when it comes to 
uh, pursuing women, including young women. I, I, I don't think, you know, one one woman can make this up. Two women can make this up. Ten women can say he acted inappropriately. But when you have 60 women come out and all essentially say this guy did something creepy towards me, I, what are the chances that all 60 of them are lying? I, I think I think it's tough. Couple of things here. One, how is any jury going to evaluate evidence of an incident that occurred in 1975? There's no physical evidence. Essentially, the only the only thing that we know for sure is that she was at the Playboy Mansion in 1975 and that Bill Cosby was at the Playboy Mansion in 1975. And so they're basing this whole case, and this is one of the reasons I think that the the award that the jury ended up giving didn't include punitive damages and was so low. They're basing this whole case on the credibility of this one woman who I'm not criticizing. She could be very well telling the truth, but she chose to stay silent for decades, decades. And I have to tell you, now this was done, this case was done in accordance with the laws in the state of California. But this case was brought about largely due to Gloria Allred, who has made it her mission, for better or worse, to go after Bill Cosby, to basically recruit as many Bill Cosby victims as to, as possible, get them to come forward get them to sue, get them to pursue criminal charges. Gloria Allred and her daughter, Lisa Bloom, they have been on a jihad against Bill Cosby. And Gloria Allred, no doubt, I'm sure will get a third uh, of the half a million dollars that that Miss Huth was rewarded. I have to tell you, I don't think it's appropriate to have no statute of limitations or what essentially amounts to a a almost no statute of limitations on sex acts that lead to civil judgments. I recognize that a civil judgment, we're only talking about money. We're not talking about someone's freedom here, but we are talking about money, which does mean something to people. And we are talking about someone's reputation. Now, Bill Cosby's reputation was in the toilet already, but Bob Dylan's was not. And Bob Dylan who is dealing with this same thing right now. So I don't think that it should be permissible to bring cases 45, 46, 47, 50 years later. I'm sorry. And look, I've known people that have been sexually assaulted, men and women, and it's a horrific thing that no one should ever have to go through. But I don't think you should be able to sue Forever. What do you think about that? Uh, My contention is there should be a much more modest civil statute of limitations. I know this issue came up in New York recently. The state legislature essentially passed uh, a law to allow uh, people that were victims of clergymen that had been committing sex acts on children for them to go after their purported predators. I don't think there should be you should be able to go after somebody almost 50 years later. In this case, it's 47 years later. It was 2014, I believe, when Judy Huth first made her comments about being assaulted by Bill Cosby in 1975. How in the world can you evaluate truth 
and eyewitness testimony. And I don't remember what I did two weeks ago. Now, admittedly, a sexual assault is a traumatic experience that stays with you. But can you really trust someone's memory from 1975? I don't think so. I'm suspect. 800-848-WABC. I want to be clear. I'm not saying Bill Cosby didn't do this. He may very, very well may have. What I am saying is I don't think it should be permissible for people to bring civil actions for any crime, but especially a sex crime, which is very serious and very damaging to someone's reputation 47 years later. You want to make it 20 years, 25 years, 30 years? Okay. But close to 50 years later, in my view, there's no way that a jury or a judge can properly evaluate the circumstances of a case like that. Tell me what you think. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. So then you got to hand it to Team Cosby. These guys never miss an opportunity to, to play the race card. Andrew Hyatt. Cosby's representative had released a statement uh, similar to the one that I read. And then he said, we have always maintained that Judy Huth, Gloria Allred, and their cohorts fabricated these false accusations in order to force Mr. Cosby to finance their racist mission against successful and accomplished black men in America. My goodness. My goodness. Are these people for real? They really think this is Gloria Glory Allred, who's a, a liberal's liberal. They really think she is on a, a, a mission to uh, denigrate successful and accomplished black men in America. I mean, come on. The fact that that was the best defense that they could come up with to rebut Gloria Allred's motives for this is a total joke. It's a total joke. Once you immediately play the race card, you have very little credibility in my judgment. Speaking of the race card, yesterday was actually technically two days ago. I don't know what day it is. It's what it's technically Wednesday. So Monday was Juneteenth observed. So it's got a lot of people talking about race. It's got a lot of people talking about slavery. And I think those are good conversations. I know in some quarters you can't have those conversations lest you be accused of uh, talking about critical race theory. No, I, I think you uh, you can have conversations about slavery and how horrible it was without uh, without being accused of some sort of ideological axe to grind. There's been a debate for a long time over the issue of reparations. Uh, and if you haven't heard of this, if you're not up on this, essentially... There are those who believed since the 1860s, and well, since 1865 precisely, that people that were slaves should be compensated some, for something. Now, I think that was a very important debate to have in 1866, 1867, 1869, 1871, 1880. Very important debate to have. Want to have a discussion about uh, whether or not freed slaves should have been gifted 40 acres and a mule? I'm all for having that discussion. All for having it. I have to tell you, since I first learned in my lifetime 
about the case for reparations. I think it's, I hate to say this because I don't want to insult anybody that subscribes to this as a, as a view. I think it's idiotic. I, you know, the fact that we're seriously talking about in the year 2022 giving reparations to people that have never been slaves, whose parents have never been slaves, whose grandparents have never been slaves, is a joke. And the fact that the people who would be paying these reparations are folks who have never owned slaves, whose parents have never owned slaves, and whose grandparents have never owned slaves is a joke. Uh, So I kind of thought for those reasons we were over this. Well, we are not. Uh, There is a city in Illinois that is bringing back the issue of reparations, and you can bet that now that Evanston, Illinois has done this, you are going to see a push for this in every major city in this country. Guarantee it. I am waiting until someone proposes this in New York or Chicago or L.A. Uh, This is a story from uh, the CBS affiliate in Illinois on what they're doing. Actually, no, this is not from the CBS affiliate in Illinois. This is from the CBS Evening News with Nora O'Donnell. This was a national story, as it should be, because this is going to be a national trend that's going to be debated in cities all around the country. Uh, this is the uh, this this is the story of what Evanston, Illinois, is doing. Ramona Burton is one of 16 eligible residents picked in a lottery to receive $25,000 in reparations. Is it enough for reparations? Um, it's a start, but I don't think it's enough for all minorities have been put through. In 2019, Evanston, Illinois, was the first in the nation to implement reparations, an effort to address harms from slavery to discriminatory housing policies. The money can only go toward mortgages or repairing homes in an effort to increase minority property value. How long have you been wanting to get this roof fixed? It's been a while. Robin Rue Simmons championed reparations here. She now runs First Repair, helping other communities do the same. For people who don't understand why black Americans should receive compensation or restitution, what do you say to them? The United States has uh, harmed the black community uh, for uh, 403 years, eras of terror and harms. And so repair is necessary. Equity has not been enough. Economist Alora de Renincourt, one of the authors of the study Wealth of Two Nations, says without change, the gap will grow wider. Black Americans are concentrated at the bottom of the income and wealth distributions in the U.S. And so as a group have not shared equally in these gains in the economy in the past 30 or 40 years. So are these your new windows here? Yes, that's a new one. That's a new one. Burton used some of her grant money to replace her windows, but says the repairs are largely emotional. It's kind of a way of an apology or admitting we've been wrong in the past. It doesn't wipe away what my ancestors had to go through, but, you know, it doesn't hurt. An attempt to restore after a history of harm. Adriana Diaz, CBS News, Evanston, Illinois. So, again, I I can't stress enough what an atrocity slavery was. But at what point are you no longer 
owed something because your ancestors were mistreated, abused, and discriminated against. At what point are you responsible for your own destiny? And a lot of the systemic changes that have uh, been implemented over the course of the last 50, 60 years, I'm thinking of certain things like affirmative action programs and other local and national governmental programs to incentivize minority-owned businesses, for instance, That is done in part because people have recognized the historical uh, mistreatment that blacks have gotten in this country. But are we really talking about uh, reparations in the year 2022 for people that have never been slaves? Your ancestors were mistreated? Uh, I'm sorry. You know what? I'm sure your neighbor up the block who's Jewish, I'm sure his ancestors were mistreated as well. I'm sure your neighbor around the corner who's um, the grandson of a Chinese immigrant, I'm sure his ancestors were mistreated as well. I'll tell you, I'm I'm the descendant of Italian immigrants. Italian immigrants in this country didn't exactly have a bed of roses. Neither did Japanese Americans that were sent in internment camps. Now, I realize the people in Japanese internment camps did get a little something in terms of reparations, but the point is, if you go back far enough, Everybody's a victim. Everybody's a victim of something. And my fear with this is you're punishing people, namely all the taxpayers, who never did anything that we're punishing them for. This is the equivalent of throwing somebody in prison for a crime that their ancestor committed. Uh, I realize, again, that freedom and money are not the same thing. But this is punishing people that have not done the crime for which they're being punished. And it's rewarding folks who have never suffered the injustice that they're being rewarded for or being compensated for. And the the biggest problem that I have with this is, you know what I do with race in this country? I don't do anything with it. When I see someone who's black or white or Asian or whatever ethnicity or some indeterminate ethnicity, I don't treat them in any special category. I treat them the same way I treat everybody else. That's what I wish everybody did. And I think most people do. I think this push for reparations, I don't think it does anything to heal racial tensions in this country. Instead, I think this heightens racial tensions in this country. I think this makes people more aware of the racial divisions in this country. And maybe this is an impolite thing to bring up the week of Juneteenth. But I think by forcing taxpayers to pay reparations, even if it's $25,000 earmarked for home repair, it just makes people more resentful of people that don't look like them. That's my two cents. Comment on uh, the Cosby verdict if you like. Do you think it's appropriate that people should be able to sue 47 years after a sexual assault? Do you belie Bill Cosby's representative's uh, accusation that this is just an attempt by Gloria Allred to um, destroy a successful black man in America? And who will be the next city to embrace reparations? And do you think they should? And if you disagree with me, by the way, Please call, uh, because I want to hear that disagreement, and I'm not going to shout you down or interrupt you, let you say whatever you want to say, and hopefully I can learn something from you as well. 800-848-9222. Let me grab at least one or two calls before we 
uh, need to take a quick break. Linda is on Long Island. You've been holding a while. Hi, Linda. Hi, Frank. I agree with you on both subjects, but I called about uh, Gloria Allred and her uh, do you remember her daughter, also an attorney, Lisa? Lisa Bloom, yes, I mentioned her, yes. Yeah, I couldn't remember. Thank you. I couldn't remember her last name. But I remember there was a little scandal about her, too, what she was doing. Uh, the two of them, I mean, I, I could, you know, over the years, I could guess. Before I heard who the attorney was, when I heard certain cases that sounded a little shady, uh, I knew right away it was Gloria Allred. Everyone did. Um, she doesn't do these things for humanitarian reasons. They've made a fortune over these cases. And I agree with you. There has to be a statute of limitations, the same as in, in every other case. Yeah, I, in I every mean, category. I, I agree, Linda. I mean, look, the rules of evidence are the same, right? So right. I know, again, forcing somebody to pay money is not as bad as forcing them to go to prison, but it's still bad. I just don't understand why we're we're acknowledging one standard for criminal cases and then a radically different standard for civil cases. In my view, evidence degrades the same way in civil court as it does in criminal court. And I agree with it. exactly. That's what most people think. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Well, it, it just it doesn't. Thank you for the call, uh, Linda. Eight hundred eight four eight. 9222. That's 1 800 848 WABC. Let me say hello to Mike in Hoboken. Hello, Mike. Mike, do me a favor. Turn your radio off. We'll go back to you. John in Brooklyn. Hello. Hello. Uh, I've heard about the reparations issues for, for years now. This is absolutely ridiculous. If anything, I think that community needs to get serious about a getting better education for their kids. And finding better role models. I mean, it's insulting, especially when you have eminent scientists like Neil deGrasse Tyson at the American Museum of Natural History, um, <clears throat> for one. Stefan Alexander, who grew up dirt poor in the Bronx and could have wound up in prison like his neighbors, but he was discovered by two people, his math teacher in high school and Winton Marsalis. And be, he's become a, a very successful physicist and jazz musician, teaching at my undergraduate Ivy League alma mater. And then one of his colleagues is an MIT-trained physicist named Sylvester Gates, who got all his degrees from MIT. And guess what? He's also uh, African-American. So these are examples of three prominent African-American scientists. Mm. I think people need to just wake up and just work hard and demand higher expectations for for the uh, students. John, thank you. And I think that's true of all races, white, black, Asian, whatever. But um, lest anyone say, well, why are you talking about this? This happened in one town, this one town in Illinois that I've never even heard of. Why are you talking about this? This is going to be happening everywhere. And that's a real shame. Case in point, St. Paul, Minnesota. There's an independent advisory committee in St. Paul, Minnesota, that has presented its recommendations just last week for the next steps in the city's reparations push. Uh, An activist who's on this committee told um, uh, Axios direct cash payment is at the top. But then there's things that follow that. Housing, education, health and wellness, business opportunities, and the criminal injustice system. Cruz said the fallout over George Floyd's murder 
brought renewed interest and urgency to the effort. Um, so in California, they have a reparations task force. They released this month a 500-page report which recommends offering housing grants, state-subsidized mortgages. The leaders in cities like L.A., Denver, Austin, Kansas City, and Durham, they've promised to pursue reparations initiatives through the forms they could, uh, you know, very widely take. My view is it doesn't matter whether it's direct payment. It doesn't matter whether it's state-subsidized mortgages. It doesn't matter whether the money is earmarked for housing improvements. The bottom line is still the same. You're punishing people monetarily that have not done the crime for which they've been, they've been punished. And I think that's absurd. And the fact that the George Floyd case brought all this out is equally absurd. And here's why. What happened to George Floyd was horrible, absolutely horrible. And it was criminal. And, it, and he was murdered. And you know what happened to his murderer? He's sitting in prison. The system worked exactly as it should. A cop was a bum and killed someone well outside the scope of his duties, and he was thrown in prison for it. That's what's supposed to happen. You know, when George Floyd was killed, you had everybody, including conservatives, Rudy Giuliani, Donald Trump, all decrying how horrible what happened to George Floyd was. There was nobody out there saying, yeah, Derek Chauvin's a great guy. He was just doing his job. Nobody was saying that. The fact that this guy was universally condemned by Donald, by President Trump, who was president at the time, by Giuliani, and by a prosecutor, by a civil jury, by a criminal jury, it shows the system works. If someone kills someone, whether they kill someone because they're racist or whether they kill someone because they're dumb or they kill someone because uh, they have some sort of bloodlust and so that's a murder, then okay, that's what's supposed to happen. The person gets punished. It shouldn't force someone that is the great, 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 great grandson of a slave to be the recipient of money from someone that never owned slaves. My family, for instance, wasn't even in this country at the time that America had slaves. Why should I, as a taxpayer, be forced to por- uh, uh, foot any portion of the financial burden? All right, I've said enough. I'll let you guys speak when we come back. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC.
singing Mercy, uh, talking about the Bill Cosby verdict out of California yesterday, including Cosby's claim that this was done solely by Gloria Allred and her cohorts to attack a successful black man. And uh, we're talking about the push in cities around the country about uh, to move towards reparations. I've said my piece. I'd love to hear from you, whatever your opinion happens to be on this subject. We've got a lot of other stuff that we're going to get to. We're going to talk about uh, the metaverse, augmented reality, virtual reality next hour. We've got a lot of other stuff. And I don't want to brag, but you are listening to someone speak who has a valid driver's license. Okay. I'll tell you how that came to be. Uh, but first, let me s- try again to say hello to Mike in Hoboken. Hello, Mike. Yeah. Hi, hey, Frank. How are you? Good, Mike. What's on your mind? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. My family came here from uh, Ireland in 1860. They've been scripted and right into the Union Army. I think I told you this before. And uh, then there were signs all around in the early 1900s, Irish don't apply. And the Irish women were treated like slaves, too. All right, so uh, what's your point, that we should not have reparations? No, of course not. All right, thank you, Mike. I, I, yeah, I think I said that. I mean, I, every ethnic ethnic group has some degree, unless you came here on the Mayflower, and even then I'm sure we could find some way that you were a victim of something. Every ethnic group has been the victim of some sort of el- injustice. Mark's in New Haven. Hello, Mark. Hey, Frank. How's Ruffle on the baby? Everyone's great. Thank you. Excellent. So, I mean, obviously, it, it, the reparations is silly. My family, which is unusual for Jews of my generation, have been here for over 120 years, but we didn't do anything, so it's obviously silly. The other question on the Bill Cosby thing, Frank, is what was the 16-year-old doing at the Playboy Club? Well, I was going to mention that, right? Uh, because, I mean, who knows? Maybe she lied to her parents or, so- or something. Uh, if I ever have a 16-year-old daughter... I will promise you that she's not being shuttled by a 37-year-old, uh, uh, you know, um, you know, a c- comedian, celebrity or not, to some, you know, uh, to some uh, party without my supervision, especially one that's so sexualized. Now, I don't know what her family situation was like, but I, exactly. I mean, what is a 16-year-old doing at the Playboy Mansion? That's a great question. Now, I know things were a little bit different in 1975 than they are in 2022, but not that much different. Not that much. I was there. I mean, I wasn't at the Playboy Club, but I was 25 in 1975. And 60-year-olds, I mean, and also, I mean, it takes some of the responsibility off Crosby minorly in that he was at the Playboy Club. I mean, he he wasn't at a tea party. He was at the Playboy Club where sexual stuff goes on. Yeah, uh, Mark, I think that's a good point as well. Again, if he did what she's accusing him of doing, he's still a creep, right? It doesn't matter whether you're at the Playboy Mansion or anywhere else. That being said, there's no way to know. There are no cameras. There's no – her testimony is unreliable. His statements about what happened are unreliable. Uh, there's no way to know if what she's claiming is true. None. 800 uh, let me say hello to BJ in Queens. Hello, BJ. Hey, Frank. Uh, you know, this interesting topic, this uh, reparations thing, 
You know, 620,000 people about uh, died at the hands of each other so that uh, we could rid the country of slavery. And I always find this discussion uh, uh, about reparations ridiculous because it's all about uh, uh, white leftists like uh, Gavin Newsom that want to throw your money around and uh, hucksters like the ones that run BLM that want to catch the money. And uh, nothing ever changes, you know. Uh, uh, it's it's uh, ridiculous to think that, uh, uh, you know, you're going to uh, – my parents who came here from the uh, Ireland in 1947 are going to pay uh, some someone who came from Nigeria uh, in 1965 money, uh, you know. Uh, and what is Kamala Harris going to pay? This is just insane. Uh, it never ends. They'll find some scheme to rob you of your money, uh, and and then everyone else will get in line. When are you going to stop? Uh, the, the, like you said, the Chinese got, uh, people going to get. They, they need reparations. Uh, I think we need reparations from white liberals. That's what I think. Well, look, I don't think so either, right? I mean, if you do something wrong to someone, you should have to pay. But nobody should have to pay reparations irrespective of their ethnicity, irrespective of their political ideology, because of something their ancestors did. Uh, I want to thank Chris and the Catskills who sent me this article from January. Canada is agreeing to reparations for 200,000 indigenous children. And billions of dollars are going to be paid in this compensation to victims of discrimination, discriminatory First Nations child welfare system. And a lot of the people that are recipients of this of this reparations, they find it insulting. So it's satisfying to some. And I'm sure who couldn't use a couple extra bucks, but it's left some insulted and infuriated. And I think it's a I think that's the same thing. If. Somebody offered me reparations because I discovered that something happened to my great-great-great-grandfather. I wouldn't want it. Pay me because I've earned money or I've won money or something. Not because of something that happened 200 years ago that I had nothing to do with and the person paying me had nothing to do with. I'm not going to make the whole show about this, but I would love to hear from some people who uh, disagree with me as well. 800-848-9222. Richard is on Staten Island. Hello, Richard. Hello, Frank. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. You know, Frank, there's, there's something that, that we haven't even touched on, and that's the logistics. How do you determine who's a rightful descendant of slavery? I mean, I read somewhere that less than half of all blacks have proper ID, let alone how are we going to determine if they were a direct descendant? And let's say, what about those, those blacks that are half black? Those blacks that immigrated here willfully, that came here voluntarily, came to the United States. Are they entitled to reparations? How about how about blacks that are that are three quarters white or whites that are half black? I mean, where does it the logist? Frank, it would be a logistical nightmare trying to figure out how to disperse this money. And let's say we figured it out. And I don't know how we're going to well, do it. Well, that's why the report on this out of California is 500 pages, because a lot of those 500 pages are dealing with the logistics of how this would work. But you're right. But let's go. Let's go one step further. Let's let's look from what some 1965, when President Johnson created the Great Society, and he started doling out hundreds of millions of dollars, Gary, Indiana, and so forth. If you factor in in 2018 dollars. Medicaid, food stamp, 
Section 8 housing, welfare, they, blacks have already gotten almost a trillion dollars in handouts. I mean, does that money get calculated? And then what, Frank? And let's say we figured it all out. Let's say, Frank, we figured out how much money. Let's say 100000 which we don't have the money for. Let's say, but each deserving black descendant from slavery got 100000 And we figured out the logistics, which, like I said, which will be a logistical nightmare. Let's say we figured out where to get the money. We figured out the logistics. And each deserving black got 100000 I can guarantee you, Frank, a year from now, or a year, a year and a half after getting that check, they'd be back asking for another check because the first check, they pissed that money away. Well, I, I don't think that's true. Uh, I think there would be a lot of people that would use that $100,000 to invest in their home and in their children's future and pay for housing and education. So I, I think that's a sweeping generalization. And, and it actually it sounds like it has a little bit of a racial overtone to it. And I'm trying not to make this a racial issue. Second, what you said about Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society, of course that money is not counted towards reparations because uh, that money and those benefits, the Great Society benefits, are given based on economic need not based on race, again, based on economic need. Uh, again, I don't want to do the whole show about this. I wanted to give you an opportunity to comment. I wanted to comment, but let me squeeze in a few more folks who will also want to comment. Sherry's in Canarsie. Hello, Sherry. Yes, good morning, Frank. Um, morning. I have a question. I have a question. Um, do you believe in generational wealth? Uh, meaning, should you be able to pass on your wealth from one generation to another? Yes. Uh, honestly, um, not really. I, I think we should have a meritocracy, and uh, that's why, and uh, this doesn't make me too popular with a lot of our conservative listeners, I am a big supporter of the estate tax, whether you want to call it the estate tax or the inheritance tax. I think once you've achieved a certain level of wealth, I think there's um, no reason that uh, you should be able to car carry that on in perpetuity. Okay, what about real estate wise? Real estate what? Real estate wise, I think uh, over that? I think over a certain level um, that your your uh, your dis, your whoever's inheriting that money should have to pay a hefty tax. Okay, do you believe that America's wealth is also based on free labor on the back of slaves? I think in part it was, but I think the if you look at the. Um, uh, the people that were the primary beneficiaries of slavery, namely sl southern plantation owners, there was that was a minuscule portion of the population. And I think if America between seventeen between uh, seventeen seventy six and eighteen sixty five did benefit in part from uh, from slave free slave labor, I think a, we've more than paid that back as a country with the sacrifice of hundreds of thousands of American lives. Uh, I have a question about that, but the point I'm trying to make is, as slaves, black America was denied so many opportunities in terms of health, in terms of education for so long, while America was building wealth on the back of free labor from these slaves. 
Don't you think somebody yeah, should be made I, I, Sherry, I agree as with that. People, I agree with that. As and people, shouldn't they be made whole? Shouldn't they be made whole? I, I think if somebody was a slave or the or the child of a slave, absolutely. Uh, that our country owes them something in terms of financial compensation. However, three things: one, none of the no no living slaves or children of slaves are still living. Uh, number one. Number two. As I said, uh, the enormous amount of lives, black and white, that were lost to rid this continent of slavery is, is I think, a substantial uh, payment, which is far greater than any sort of financial compensation. Three, the fact that we now see uh, more black millionaires in this country than at any point in American uh, history. That's going out on a limb. That's going out on a limb. I think because shows that... Um, that black, hang on, Sherry. I'll let you say whatever you want. I promise. I'm not going to interrupt you. I think uh, that shows that upward mobility is just as uh, just as viable in the black community as it is in other communities. And then lastly, and then I'll let you have the last word, Sherry. Lastly, I think if you look at programs like Affirmative Action, which have been designed to give minorities access to higher education and jobs and other things, that's done in part because of how America screwed blacks in the early part of the country and in the early part of the country's history. Unfortunately, we have people, supposedly leaders in the community, who are always in the forefront, sort of fighting for us to get something. But in general, I think America owes the black community some kind of generational wealth, part of it. Because a lot of this wealth in America is built on the back of those slaves. Uh, Fair point, Sherry. I appreciate you calling and uh, sharing your view. My view is that working class whites and working class blacks have a whole lot more in common than people who are in different classes and different races. I think, um, you know, we should do whatever we can to help working class, the working poor, no matter their ethnicity. I think that's something that the country has largely abandoned through reckless free trade deals, through uh, sending poor kids and the children of poor parents uh, to, you know, the Middle East, to countries that never attacked us to go die. Uh, I think that's something that I'm all for solving. I am absolutely not for giving someone who was never a slave and never the child of a slave and never the grandchild of a slave money from people that never had slaves. Uh, to me, that's a uh, non-starter. 800-848-9222. Uh, let me say, uh, we'll take one more call on this, and then I'm going to move on. And if you want to keep holding, we'll try and get to you, but I, am, I do want to move on. Pamela's in central New Jersey. Hello. Uh, yeah, you, you just mentioned it. Affirmative action. People don't realize that that was a huge reparation. Uh, people were denied jobs and uh, livelihoods. And um, for years and years and years, and uh, like you were talking about the draft of uh, Vietnam and World War II took a lot of lives. And uh, so reparations have been paid in a huge amount. We'd be speaking German right now. And and a lot of our relatives have died in Vietnam, which is forgotten about. So uh, and and I understand all different races went into those wars. But uh, a lot of people don't realize how much has been paid to this country so that we're not speaking German right now and that we uh, tried to keep the communists out. But unfortunately, they're 
they're in our country right now. But anyway, so a lot of reparations have been paid. Thank you, Pamela. Uh, We'll continue in just a bit. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is a true story. Uh, I have lived in my home for almost two years, and uh, I have not gotten a driver's license with my new address. And about four or five months ago, I tried to change this online, and I got a confirmation back that it was changed. But they never sent me a new driver's license because I, uh, I don't know, they never sent me a new driver's license. So I have been carrying around this driver's license with my old address for two years. I can't tell you how inconvenient this is. It hurt me when I was trying to get a passport for young Carmine at the post office recently. It's hurt me uh, repeatedly when I've tried to use my uh, ID for things. I can't even order checks because I'm not able to show them proof that I live where I claim that I live with a photo ID. It's been a big inconvenience. Then, lo and behold, I learned recently that my driver's license expired recently. So I got an appointment yesterday to address these issues. And I got a 2 o'clock appointment. Now, 2 o'clock appointment is no joke for me. Because if I have my druthers, I'm sleeping until 3 p.m. So that means I'm waking up at 1.30, stumbling to my car, driving with an expired license to the DMV, with my appointment in hand, I got my appointment for 2 o'clock. Make it there by 2.05. I get in line. They say, do you have an appointment? Yes, I do. Can I see the email? Yes, you can. Here you go. Um, well, the QR code is not coming up. Uh-oh. First problem. All right. Do you need the QR code? No, just give us the confirmation number. Give the confirmation number. Okay. Are you getting uh, – they have this very helpful woman when you first get to the DMV that greets you in line – to make sure you have an appointment and to make sure you're going to the right place. Very helpful, i got to say. And uh, she says, all right, are you getting an enhanced ID or are you getting just a regular ID? And I'm thinking, oh, maybe this is my opportunity to get an enhanced ID. I could use this to fly when I go to Mexico in December. And I tell her, uh, well, maybe I'll get the enhanced. What do I need for the enhanced? Oh, well, for that you need a birth certificate. And then she names like two or three other things, which I don't have on me. I said, oh, no, no, no. Okay, I'll just take the regular ID. Regular ID? Fine. Here's all you have to do. Go over there, wait in that line, pass an eye test. After you pass that eye test, go over to that yellow kiosk over there. And, uh, you know, scan your ID. And you can do it all in line. You'll be done in five minutes. Five minutes? At the DMV? Five minutes? And at this point, I'm pretty sure someone's punking me. I'm looking around for a hidden camera or something. I've never been done in five minutes with anything at the DMV. I'm looking around. And she's serious. So, sure enough, I go to wait in line. I get my eye test, pass with flying colors. I go to the yellow kiosk. I scan my ID. Sorry, the information you have doesn't match our records. Try again. Sorry, the information that you have doesn't match our records. 
And I go back to this lady who was so helpful. Now, I've already passed my eye test. I go back to this lady. I said, I explained to her what happened. Okay, try it again. Don't scan your ID this time. Okay. There's no option to not scan my ID if you click that you're renewing your license. And then she sees that I'm struggling. She said, um, okay, well, I guess that's not going to work. And I knew it was too good to be true. I knew I wasn't going to be done in five minutes. Go back to that line there. Uh, get that card that I gave you with your number. I go back to my card. I get the card, and I'm looking at this screen they have. It looks like a giant bingo board of one five six nine JP one twenty seven. I don't understand why some people are letters and numbers, and other people are just numbers. Q thirty seven C twenty one one five two six, and there's like a PA announcer uh, announcing now serving. P-137, please go to booth 14. Okay. And I'm watching. They have the – I'm listening, and I'm watching. I said, okay, this is where they're going to get me. And I'm waiting, and I'm reading an interesting book, and I'm waiting, and I keep looking up, and I see my number's up there, but only for a second. But that's all I need. I figure, okay, that must mean I'm next. I jet over to booth 13 where I see my number, 1537. And then she's helping somebody else. And then as soon as she's done with this other guy, I don't wait for any sign changing. I run over there. I said, hi, I'm, I'm 1537. I saw the number up there, but now I don't see it. She says, oh, you're the kiosk guy that I was calling 20 minutes ago. And I said, I didn't hear anybody call me. I didn't see it up there until just now. She said, yeah, I called you. Uh, I said, I'm sorry, I didn't see it. All right, all right, all right, all right. Let me see your existing license. I give it to her. She makes me take another eye test. Now I'm there about an hour. Now this is starting to feel like the DMV that I'm familiar with. Um, Cash, credit, or debit? uh, Credit. I'm out of money in my checking account. I have no cash. And pay $80, and she hands me an interim driver's license, ladies and gentlemen. I am once again now a man with a driver's license. So I go back home. I tell my wife success. Because she knew I was, she predicted I was going to have a problem. She said success. And she's smiling. She said, oh, they gave you a temporary license, and I hold it up, and it says interim driver's license. I said, I have an interim driver's license. You are now married to someone with an interim driver's license. She said, that's great, honey. Congratulations. And then she starts telling me about her day and what's going on. She said, did they take your picture? I said, no. She said, don't you remember what went on with me a couple of weeks ago? I had to go to the DMV a third time. Because my photo wasn't up to date. And uh, that's what's going to happen to you. I warned you about that. Meanwhile, I, I don't remember her warning me about that. I remember her having to go to the DMV three times. I don't remember her saying that I had to take a photo again. They never asked me for a photo. So I am hoping that um, I am done with the DMV and don't have to go back for another photo. But in the meantime, we are... Uh, You are listening to a man who has an interim driver's license, which is completely valid. Hey, we'll talk about the metaverse next hour. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano.
Good morrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. We're going to talk about virtual reality and augmented reality with Louis Rosenberg uh, in about 10 minutes. And uh, that's the direction that everybody's going. Augmented reality, the metaverse, virtual reality. What does it all mean? We're about to find out. But there's two trends that I want to make you aware of. One, I think, is a positive, even though it's kind of gross. And the other is, I think, a negative. Let me tell you about both. And then if you want to weigh in on either, you're welcome to. So uh, do you know, have you heard the term P-cycling? Do you know what that is, P-cycling? Well, it may sound weird, it may sound gross, but people have been nourishing crops with human urine for centuries. Why urine? Well, we ingest all sorts of nutrients, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and then excrete them And the bottom line is plants need them. So Fabian Escolier, who's a researcher with uh, a program that looks into this in France, they study the management of human nutrient excretion. He told Euronews that human urine could replace synthetic fertilizers. Isn't that interesting? So why? Urine as a fertilizer has several benefits. It's less of a pollutant. It's typically cheaper than chemical fertilizer. Plus, collecting urine means not flushing it, thus not polluting watersheds and saving water. The war in Ukraine and other sanctions that are happening in Russia and other places, they've also caused, as you might tell, supply chain issues with farmers. Russia exports are 20% of the world's nitrogen fertilizer. And if you combine that with Belarus, that is 40% of the world's exported potassium. That's according to Business Insider. Human urine could replace 25% of nitrogen and phosphorus fertilizers worldwide. That's huge. Uh, That's according to uh, an institution called, a company called Sanitation 360, which is a Swedish company that uh, converts urine into fertilizer. Now, there are some barriers. One is, I think, obvious, is you have to get people to not feel so icky about this. Two is we have to change our plumbing infrastructure to collect urine because now urine and, shall we say, solid waste all goes in the same place. But if we could have these specialized urinals earmarked to collect urine that could then be turned into fertilizer, that would be a global game changer. And there are several projects already underway all over the world. In Vermont, the Rich Earth Institute collects 10,000-plus gallons a year from volunteers who bottle it at home and then bring it to a urine depot. Isn't that interesting? In Sweden... Sanitation 360, which is that company I just referenced, they aim to collect 70,000-plus liters of urine in three years from waterless toilets. The urine is then dried, pressed into pellets, and used to grow barley. Uh, By the way, if you are curious about, uh, I don't know how to put it, peeing on your own plants, well, the Rich Earth Institute also has a guide for that. I am going to link to it on my Facebook page right now. And uh, you can see if, um, you know, you can be urinating 
on your own garden in order to save yourself some fertilizer. Would you do this? How do you feel about this? I think this is great. We're getting rid of this stuff anyway. You may as well use it for something productive. I mean, not everybody is like Gulliver in the land of the Lilliputians, and they could use it to put out fires. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Here's a trend that uh, I think is very worrisome. An average of three out of four students are not getting enough physical activity rates of which are shown to decline between ninth and 12th grades. This is according to a study of 360,000 high school students by the University of Georgia. It also revealed a strong divide along the gender line, with only 35% of female students engaged in regular activity, compared to 57% of male students. Now, you combine this with the garbage that kids are eating, because of I, I, we'll we'll have a whole separate discussion about about the diet of the American teenager, but you combine this with the garbage the kids are eating, this is leading to an epidemic of obesity among young people. So the study authors from the University of Georgia blame education, not lazy teens, for their lack of exercise. Listen to this, Janani Rajbandari Thapa an associate professor of health policy and management at the University of Georgia, said in a statement this, the length of recess, physical facilities, and social environments at schools have been found to affect physical activity among students. So this professor recently helped lead Georgia public schools in an initiative to increase health and physical education in the state. Over time... Georgia has observed declining levels of physical activity among all adolescents, but the rate is higher among female, middle, and high school students. So the new research reinforces these previous findings that gym class requirements have been in decline in recent decades, as well as data showing that obesity among adolescents aged 12 to 19 has tripled since the 1990s. Now, they, the she, this professor, and her cohorts suspect that a supportive social environment may be key to encouraging interest in sports and exercise among students, which means creating safe spaces against bullying and discrimination, among other cautionary tales. Um, we do not know much about the role of school climate on physical activity. There must have been barriers that were faced by certain groups of students Hence, we wanted to investigate the difference by gender. I don't know how much of this decline in children's exercise is due to bullying. That strikes me as a bit of a reach. But their team measured a school's climate against eight factors. School connectedness, peer social support, adult social support, cultural acceptance, physical environment, school safety, peer victimization, a.k.a. bullying, and school support environment. So broadly, they claim that schools with more positive social climates yielded more physically active students, while the only gender-based divergence they found across the eight factors was bullying. Notably, women who reported having been bullied in school tended to be more physically active than their less bullied counterparts, whereas men who experienced bullying were less likely 
to engage in school-based exercise. Isn't that interesting? You bully a girl, she wants to be more active. You bully a boy, he's less active. I'm pretty surprised by that, actually. I would have assumed that it would have been similar across both genders, but it goes to show you what I know. That's why I'm not a researcher at the University of Georgia. So they theorize that this might coincide with society's gender norms. For example, female students who are active in sports and physically active may not fit the gender norm and hence may face bullying. Well, I guess that makes sense. I guess that makes sense. Uh, Whereas if you're a guy and you're into sports, you're less likely to face some sort of bullying, at least for the physical activity. But I do find, at least I've heard anecdotally from schools, um, from teachers, parents, and school administrators, that there is less opportunity for things like real physical education. And I think that's part of this here. All right, we're going to take a couple of quick calls, and then we'll get to Lewis Rosenberg, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. If you want to comment on either of these trends, urine as fertilizer and teens getting fatter uh, and getting less physically active. It's not their fault. It's not because they're sitting around watching TV. According to the University of Georgia, it's because there's less opportunity for physical Activity and the social climates in these schools don't support physical activity. Let me begin with Bruce on Staten Island. Hello, Bruce. Hi, how are you? And um, it's a pleasure to uh, be on the phone, and thank you for taking my call. But, yeah, of course. Let me let me shut my radio off. Yeah, yeah. Uh, shut your radio off. Pete on Staten Island. Hello. Hey, Frank. Listen, uh, about bullying. Well, I was bullied maybe fourth and fifth grade and sixth grade. When I went into... Uh, High school, you know, I got into sports, and that stopped that immediately. You know, and that music. But, uh, you know, the whole show, you, I've been sitting at the edge of my seat the whole show listening to you, and you hit on every point that I would say 150%. So uh, back to uh, what we're saying about uh, when I got into the, you know, sports, playing football for Noodle High School and stuff, everything stopped. It was all over with. And the thing with the urine, it's funny. Uh, I'm not embarrassed to say it. I rent some property, and I actually um, partnership, and I park my car. And sometimes I'm 66. I got prostate trouble. Sometimes I get a little short. And, man, you got to see how these plants are growing. <laughs> uh, man, they're like uh, jungle plants that are growing. And when you said that, I go, Oh, God, I just look, it's true, because I've heard this before, but I never really. Apparently uh, it's true. But I want to thank you, Pete. That's very funny. I'm glad your plants are working out. But I want people to read this guide before they just start peeing on all their plants. uh, Read this guide that I just linked to on my Facebook page, Facebook.com slash Morano fan. John is in Thornwood. Hello, John. Yeah, Frank, you were talking about the fertilizer that's made from urine. Well, there's a fertilizer called Melorganite. It's made here in the United States. It's made from the um, sewerage plant in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It's been around for years. Well, I'm not surprised to hear that. Apparently, this idea of using human excrement as fertilizer is nothing new, and it could very well help us with this supply chain crisis. Let me get to one more call here, then we'll get to Lewis Rosenberg. Hello, Bruce. Uh, Hi, how are you? It's Bruce from Staten Island. I, uh, and I, I, I want to make one thing really clear here. You talk about um, how the, the, the children and this and that, and, and it's horrible what's going on in this world 
with the kids and this and that, with the LGBTQRIS, and uh, how, uh, um, how uh, President Biden says it the way he says it. But I'll tell you right now that uh, I was an altar boy as a young as a young boy, only about seven or eight years old or ten. I don't even remember. But you know what? The, every day they all treated me nice, and I and you know, I ate the I ate the host wafers because I was so. Hungry. Oh man! All right, you can't can't say that here. All right, let's uh, g- let's keep our emotions in check here. All right, uh, all right. Uh, it strikes me as good a time as any to take a break. We'll talk to Louis Rosenberg in just a minute. Uh, this is the other side of midnight. We're to talk virtual reality and augmented reality straight ahead. WABC. This is the other side of midnight with Frank Morano, seventy-seven WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Let's be honest. There are all these terms out there that you hear all the time. You hear them on the news. You hear them on the radio. You hear them at the water cooler or coffee machine at your office. You overhear people talking about it in bars. You hear the terms metaverse, cryptocurrency, uh, NFT, augmented reality, virtual reality. Maybe with the exception of virtual reality, which people have been saying is going to be the next big thing for the last 40 years. Maybe you get what that is. But the those other terms, let's face it, a lot of you sort of have your eyes glaze over and hope that no one really calls you on the fact that you don't exactly understand what those terms mean. I'll be honest with you. A lot of times I'm in that same category. Well, a guy that knows all about all those things is a real pioneer in the field of virtual reality and augmented reality. Dr. Lewis Rosenberg, he is a technologist, a prolific inventor, an entrepreneur, a writer, and he's currently the CEO and chief scientist of the artificial intelligence company Unanimous AI. And he's here to help uh, clarify a few of the ideas that are rolling around in the metaverse. Lewis, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Yeah, thanks for having me. So let's begin with virtual reality. When people use that term, what exactly is virtual reality? Sure. So um, virtual reality, as as the name implies, is a simulation or replication of reality. And uh, it's generally uh, created by having people put on, uh, most importantly, a, a headset. So what they see is a 3D simulated world, and that headset has what's called head tracking. So as they move their head around, uh, it, their view changes in that simulated world. And because of that, they have this feeling of immersion. They feel, they feel immersed or present in this simulated world. And if you can make the visuals photorealistic and all the reactions and interactions as, uh, as accurate as possible, you could simulate the real world, simulate reality with such fidelity that it would seem fully authentic. And and we're not there yet, but uh, the technology has been advancing uh, over the last 30, 40 years, getting better and better to the point now where uh, the the imagery and the interactions are very compelling 
and uh, and the cost keeps coming down, which is why uh, we're now at this place where it seems very possible that in the next five to ten years, uh, this technology of, of virtual reality could impact impact everybody. Mm. From, uh, from professionals to just mainstream consumers. How about the term augmented reality? Is that another name for the same thing? Is, or, or if augmented reality is something different from virtual reality, what is it and can you explain that next step, what that difference might be? Sure. So, uh, so virtual reality, as we said, you, you uh, are immersed in a fully simulated world and uh, it has its benefits, but it also has a big drawback, which is that you are cut off from the real world. So when you're in a virtual reality, uh, you cannot see your surroundings around you. Augmented reality is, uh, is a merger of the real world and the virtual world so that you are basically overlaying virtual content onto the real world around you. So uh, these simulated objects and simulated interactions and simulated sensations are present in the real world. Uh, and then this is achieved uh, with a different type of headset. Instead of a, a headset that's cutting you off from the real world, it's a headset that um, is lightweight glasses that you can see through. But when you look through those glasses, it is also projecting into your view uh, simulated objects. And so in an augmented world, in augmented reality, uh, the software can can embellish the real world with all kinds of interesting creative content um, and and make the real world a you know, a magical place with uh, as a combination of of real and virtual things. I know um, for a while uh, the one of the big games was Pokemon Go, where people would play this game on their phones and they would see these essentially these digital uh, Poke stops uh, through their phone, and that was sort of uh, it seems to me an example of what you're saying, combining a digital enhancement with the real world. Is that an example of augmented reality? It is. It is. It's a simple example of augmented reality because it's uh, it's happening on your phone. So your phone basically becomes a little window uh, that's allowing you to to look into this augmented world through this little uh, window that you're holding around. And as you move your phone around, uh, that window moves. Um, it's uh, it's an interesting application. Uh, it is augmented reality, but it's not as immersive as if you were wearing glasses. Uh, instead of holding a phone, and so now if you're if you're wearing glasses, uh, basically everywhere you look, uh, you could have that experience, and it would be very very natural. And so, uh, most of the large uh, computer manufacturers and phone manufacturers are now really pushing hard to uh, to transition from these you know this handheld augmented reality with phones to uh, to glasses, lightweight, stylish glasses, and so uh, my my guess is that uh, around in the next two to three years, 2025, we'll see augmented reality glasses from uh, from large companies like Apple, uh, Meta, Google, uh, Sony, Samsung. Uh, they are all uh, basically in an in a an arms race to uh, to launch that tech 
technology to consumers uh, in the next few years. I mean, two to three years is nothing in the grand scheme of things. That's essentially saying this technology and uh, the consumer's ability to tap into it is basically right around the corner. It is. It's it's close. Uh, uh, most of these companies have uh, have shown prototypes and uh, announced that their plans their plans for augmented reality are you know are near term, uh, just a few years out. And I would expect that uh, certainly Apple and Google and Samsung will uh, will push hard into this space because they they see it as the natural evolution of the mobile phone. And and I know for a lot of people, including myself, you, you can't imagine that you're going to want to wear glasses walking down the street uh, to, to have augmented reality experience. Um, but what that technology will do is it will put content into the world at exactly the location where you want it. And so uh, as you're walking down the street and you uh, look into a store window, you will see you know prices pop up and, and information about products. Uh, you, you might be walking down the street and see information about landmarks and, and other things. And so the, these, uh, the phone manufacturers who are pushing hard for these glasses, they, they really see the opportunity to create this embellished world with all kinds of information and content and creative artwork that, uh, that exists all around you. And, and their hope is that um, in five to 10 years when people are used to wearing glasses to see all this content around them, we, they will look back at the time when you were walking down the street with your neck bent, staring down at a phone to get that same information. And they will, you'll think like, well, that's kind of silly. Like, you, <laughs> like, and so it is, um, you know, the goal really is to make information more natural and, uh, you know, the way we are, you know, we're intended to perceive it, which is our, all around us rather than, you know, on this little screen in our hand. All right. Uh, if people just tune in, we're talking with Lewis Rosenberg. He is the chief scientist and the CEO of the artificial intelligence company Unanimous AI. We're going to talk a little bit about artificial intelligence in just a minute, and uh, that's something that's certainly been getting a lot of attention. How about the metaverse, Lewis? What can you uh, what can you tell folks that may have heard the term but not necessarily understand what it is? What is the metaverse? Yeah, so uh, the metaverse is, um, in a lot of ways, a, a new marketing term that uh, refers to all of these immersive technologies, um, virtual reality, augmented reality. Uh, th- there's other words people use, mixed reality, extended reality. But but what the metaverse is, is, is really this uh, overarching term. It was you know, popularized you know, very much by Facebook when they changed their name to Meta, and they, you know, and they uh, brought it into the public consciousness in a in a big way last year. Uh, and it, before that, it was really just a term in science fiction that that didn't get that much attention. But I think the way people can think about the word metaverse now is really about this broad transition that um, from a computing world today where almost all the content that you interact with is flat, flat content that you interact with by observing it in the third person and transitioning to uh, really a different computing infrastructure where uh, the content is immersive and you experience it in the first person. And so it's really about changing the role of the user from 
an observer on the outside looking in at information to a participant on the inside being immersed in the information. And it could be fully virtual or it could be augmented, but that is, uh, that is really the big vision of the metaverse. And there are big companies like Meta who believe you know, that's the future of social media, that's the future of social interaction, it's the future of entertainment, it's the future of shopping, it's the future of uh, you know, computing in general. And um, you know whether or not that that's the you know, how things pan out remains to be seen. But uh, companies are investing massive amounts in it. Meta is investing over ten billion dollars a year in pushing for this metaverse, and other large companies like Apple and Google and Sony and Samsung uh, are also investing heavily. I always look for examples of popular films or television shows that can explain some of the concepts that I'm talking about, not just with technology, but with uh, uh, maybe social interactions, political things, economic things. Are there any good motion pictures that you think do a good job explaining where we're headed towards the next level of all this stuff, be it virtual reality, augmented reality, or the metaverse? Anything that you really like that thinks that you think uh, portrays a realistic depiction of the near future? Yeah, there's um, usually it's not it's not that realistic <laughs> in that you know the the film franchise that people refer to the the most in terms of you know virtual reality is the matrix uh, because it's a world you know it's a, it's a simulated world that people that's so real people don't even know that they're in it and um and that is you know the dystopian future um there's you know you can have a, a comedy version of of almost the same thing like the the old film the truman show where uh it's you know uh, Jim Carrey's in a world where you know, they use actors to, to simulate the whole world around him. But again, it's this fully simulated world that, that looks and feels real. And I think, um, I think those are really interesting depictions. Um, there, aren't, there aren't really near-term depictions that, that are coming – close to what's really going to happen. I, and I'm not sure why. I, I think it's because um, science fiction is always looking 10, 20, 30 years out, and uh, it, it's really looking towards the, you know, the full-blown dystopian scenarios that, uh, that these type of technologies could, could lead to. So um, if in the f near future, four, five, six, seven years, most of the world is going to be walking around with these uh, virtual headsets, will that replace our mobile phone, especially our smartphone? I mean, we've seen a lot of iterations of the mobile phone. We remember what the uh, mobile phone looked like in the 1980s, the size of essentially a boombox that you're holding up to your head. Then we remember <laughs> the uh, the flip phone phase, which looked kind of like a, a, a communicator from Star Trek. Then uh, we see uh, basically what we have now in terms of smartphones. Is your prediction that 10 years from now, let's say, what we're carrying around as our smartphone or our iPhone, is that going to be totally obsolete? So I personally believe that that will be the case. I think in the early 3030s, so uh, 10 years or, or maybe a little bit less, we will be uh, – the technology will be at a place where – 
most people are thinking about their in, in their mobile computing as eyewear and not as something that they hold in their hand. And I think the transition will happen, in some sense, at a very temp- similar pacing to what we saw uh, when the iPhone replaced the flip phone. So, so I think it was 2007 that Apple launched the iPhone. It was the first smartphone. Nobody knew they needed a smartphone. Nobody thought they needed to spend $1,000 on a phone. Um, People were, you know, thought that phones were for making phone calls, and they were relatively inexpensive. Um, but once Apple launched the iPhone, it started to give uh, different capabilities. It started to allow people to to access information in new ways, in mobile ways, with GPS. And it only took you know, five or six years mm. before people felt like they had no choice but to have a smartphone. Because if you if you know if you didn't have a smartphone you were now missing out on information missing out on capabilities that you just can't get on a on a old flip phone and so within 5 6 years it really completely transformed the market and it became uh the smartphone became you know, by far the dominant the, the dominant technology so now if we if we expect let's say in 2024 2025 let's say apple comes out with augmented reality glasses, um, it will be the same thing. It will be expensive at first. It will be you know, relatively small at first, but it will give new capabilities. Now, when you, again, when you're walking down the street, you'll be able to see all kinds of interesting, interesting information, interesting content, interesting artwork uh, that you really can't see conveniently on a handheld phone. And I think within five or six years of that launching, uh, people will start to feel like they have no choice because if they don't have uh, that eyewear, they won't be able to access the content that is you know, basically being projected all around them anywhere they go, out in public, uh, in stores, in workplaces. And so I do think that there's a reasonable case to be made that adoption will happen uh, relatively quickly and in the early 2030s, uh, we won't be staring down at phones in our hand, but we'll just expect that uh, very, you know, again, lightweight, stylish eyewear uh, that will allow this content to be uh, to be all around us. Talking with Lewis Rosenberg, a technologist and an inventor that follows this stuff pretty closely. A friend of mine is creating a metaverse uh, Staten Island, which is my hometown. It's one of the boroughs here in New York City. And I said that not only would I like to buy my house for $40, but one of the most famous pieces of Staten Island real estate was the house where they shot the Godfather. And I said I would be willing to bid up to $3,500 for this virtual Godfather house. Now, my wife almost threw me out of our actual house <laughs> for being willing to spend $3,500 on a fake house. Am I, am I just the most farsighted and, and a clairvoyant digital real estate investor there is? <laughs> or is my wife right that, uh, I, you know, P.T. Barnum's axiom applies to me that there's a sucker born every minute? Yeah, so there's, you know, there's been this whole push for, you know, quote, virtual real estate, uh, people selling selling real estate plots of land in, you know, quote, the metaverse. It could be inside of a fully virtual world that is completely abstract, or it could be, you know, plots of land in the real world that are, you know, basically for augmented content 
over over things. Um, I think it is a, a, a pretty risky proposition because we don't know which of these platforms are going to end up being the dominant platforms and which platforms are just going to go away. And so unlike you know, real real estate where there's you know, there's a real plot of land on Staten Island and you you know you expect that that's going to be there in 100 years, it's not just going to go away. Uh, in the metaverse, uh, you know, some of these platforms will, will just go away. Uh, the other thing about virtual real estate is that um, it's potentially unlimited in size. And so, if if you're selling plots of land in a you know in this virtual world, it's unlimited. The 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 creator of that world could just keep creating more and more land. And so, this you know the thing that generally drives up prices is scarcity and it's not clear that scarcity will play the same role uh, in virtual real uh, estate. I see. Uh, and and so there's a lot of interesting things. It's it's hard to know what will happen. I think I think like anything some investments will turn out to be really good because they will be the platforms that are that are uh, popular and um and there will be competition and then I think there will be you know other virtual real estates that are just a, a complete bust uh, because the platforms just go away. You wrote a column last month uh, where you indicated that the movement towards all of this stuff, augmented reality, virtual reality, and the accompanying consumer technology, which is soon going to be available for folks at uh, a relatively reasonable price, that this could actually allow humans to essentially have superpowers. Uh, What sort of superpowers can humans look forward to in an augmented reality world? Yeah. So, um, as I said, augmented reality allows us to lay information over over the real world, and um, and that will give us these capabilities that we don't necessarily have today. Uh, some of those capabilities will be for professionals, and some of those capabilities will be for consumers. It's it's easiest to see the capabilities right now for professionals because some of those technologies have already been developed. So so in that article I talked about some of the really interesting things that are happening in medicine, where uh, where the augmented reality technology is is being given to uh, to doctors and surgeons and radiologists and are creating really interesting capabilities. The most basic one is is X-ray vision. And so there's a, a number of systems that have been developed that are connecting this capability of augmented reality with uh, medical images like CT scans, MRI scans, ultrasounds, and they're able to correlate that with the patient on the table. So imagine you're a surgeon and you're going to do surgery on a patient and you have a 3D CAT scan of that patient well, right now what, what happens is a doctor will go over to a flat screen and look at that 3D CAT scan, uh, try to uh, you know, understand where the, the trauma is inside the patient or the disease, and then they'll look back at the patient and they'll, you know, they have to then do a procedure. With augmented reality, they can take that content off that flat screen and, and basically put it exactly where the patient is. And so from the doctor's perspective, it's as if they're just looking into the patient and seeing the CAT scan, seeing the medical image, they're seeing the disease or they're seeing the trauma right under the skin because the augmented reality glasses are giving them that capability. And so that's you know a, one example of a superpower that already doctors are getting in uh, 
basically research studies uh, that are being done around the world. It, this is already possible, and I would say within five years it will start to become commonplace for doctors. But that same capability of x-ray vision uh, will go beyond uh, surgery to all kinds of interesting professions. There will be a time when if you are a plumber or an electrician and you're going to a house, you'll put on augmented reality glasses and you'll be able to just see right through the wall and see, see into the wall and see where the pipes are, see where the electrical conduits are, see where the HVAC uh, ducting is because you will have a 3D model of the house that uh, that you can access and it will allow you then to just use the augmented reality glasses and just and see that. The same thing will happen in uh, people who are manufacturing airplanes or cars or repairing, uh, repairing, and so from engineering to architecture to uh, to surgery, you know, augmented reality will give these really interesting capabilities. You can then think, well, what's going to happen for just regular consumers? You know, regular consumers, uh, you're wearing your your augmented reality glasses, and uh, let's say. You uh, you're in an office and and you uh, somebody walks up to you. These glasses will be set so that it will tell you that person's name. Uh, you don't have you don't have to worry about forgetting forgetting the name of you know hundreds of other employees. Every time an employee comes near you, uh, the augmented real, reality glasses will tell you their their name, what their job title is, uh, maybe other information. The the name of their their spouse, how many kids they have, and so this you know this ability to have basically super memory, super recall, because the augmented reality glasses will give you this information in real time as you're walking through your world, that will that will happen, and so um, it is you know, there, there's uh, you know, vast amounts of of applications and capabilities that will be unleashed when you can put this content just into your daily life and have uh, and have uh, what will feel like a magical ability that that you just don't have in today's world. So this is going to be useful and applicable for a lot more than just video games and uh, and better and better video games, right? Uh, so I, I absolutely think that that will be the case um, in terms of the uh, in, you know, obviously for gaming, for entertainment, there will be also magical, amazing applications. And I, so I do think that one of the big, you know, killer apps for augmented reality, for virtual reality, will be entertainment. But I think for most people in their daily lives, it will be, you know, everything from getting information while shopping to getting, you know, educational information. Uh, when you're walking down the street, you know, you're walking down the street and you look at, and you, you see a particular tree and information comes up telling you what kind of tree it is. Uh, and so it's really about bringing all that information that you might normally have sat down on, in front of a flat screen and, um, and you know, typed into Google. And instead it will just be all around you. And, um, and it will, again, it will bring, it will bring these Magical capabilities, um, artistic capabilities, where these applications are basically embellishing 
embellishing the world around you. I can see in our audience, uh, I'm hearing from them already, people listening to this discussion who already think people in general, but young people specifically, are already staring at screens too much. They're staring at their phones, they're staring at their computers, they're staring at their smart TVs, and they look at the world that you're describing where everybody is essentially uh, staring through a screen at all times and saying uh, that this is just going to be terrible. Do you think, and maybe you're not the best source to ask this question to, but do you think this is something that the public should be embracing? Or is this something that we should be trying to pump the brakes and slow down a little bit, lest members of the public become even more out of touch with actual reality? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And I definitely have mixed feelings about the technology for a variety of reasons. Um, There's... There's first, there's just being um, lost in the technology, and I think in fully virtual worlds where somebody goes into a simulation and they're cut off from the real world, I think that's pretty dangerous. I think we, we, you know, we already see that with gaming, where people, you know, uh, there are young people who go into gaming, uh, gaming environments and spend huge numbers of hours a day and kind of lose touch with reality. I think the same thing can happen in virtual world. I, I think augmented reality will be. A safer and more interesting and, and uh, more uh, you know, s- socially uh, reasonable because you, you're not replacing the real world. You're just embellishing the real world. And so you're still having face-to-face interactions and you're still interacting with other people in places and you're just bringing uh, content, you know, virtual content into the world. So I do think that there's potential downsides of both. I think augmented reality is safer. I also think that there are other dangers that are you know, that, that I worry about a lot, which is that these platforms, um, whether it's virtual reality or augmented reality, give the platform providers extreme amounts of power. And they do that because they have the ability, uh, by the nature of how these systems work, to track people wherever they go and wherever they do, uh, whatever they do. So if you know if you're going to have this capability from uh, from Apple or Meta or Samsung or Google that will allow you to walk down the street and look at a tree and and see you know all kinds of interesting scientific information about that tree, that's amazing. But that means that that company mm. had to know exactly where you were standing, exactly what direction you were looking, in order to give you that information. And so they are they are uh, they have to be able to track vast amounts of information. And so these platforms will know, you know, where you are, what you're doing, what direction you're looking, how long your gaze is lingering uh, as you as you walk down the street. They'll know if you slow down and look into a particular store window or you speed up and walk past another store window. Uh, They'll know how fast you're walking. They'll know uh, they'll be able to track your posture to to determine, you know, are you. are you interested uh, in something that's in front of you? Are you are you not interested? And all that, inf- you know, tracking all that information, such intimate levels of information about everybody on the planet is scary. It should be a concern. Um, and so my personal view is that there really should be significant regulation of these metaverse technologies so that we can have mm. these amazing magical capabilities but not have to worry that these capabilities will give the platform providers you know, uh, just vast amounts of information that goes far beyond what they're you know right now they're tracking you know where you click and uh, 
and maybe what you buy online, they're not tracking, you know, where you're walking and who you're walking with and what you're doing. But these these metaverse technologies will allow that. Uh, John, with Lewis Rosenberg, he's the CEO and the chief scientist of the artificial intelligence company Unanimous AI. Uh, Lewis, I could talk with you about this stuff all day. I'm running out of time here. But two final issues I do have to ask you about. One, it has to do with this. You used AI to protect to predict that the Golden State Warriors would win the NBA Finals in six games. How'd you do that? And can you use that same AI methodology to make a pick for the World Series and maybe even the 2024 presidential election? Yeah. So, uh, so my company, uh, Unanimous AI, uh, we're an artificial intelligence company, but we actually do this in a very different way. Instead of using AI to replace people with algorithms, we actually use AI to connect groups of people together. And so um, we will take a group of people. In, in the case of, uh, of predicting sports, we'll take a group of sports fans, not, not experts, just you know, 30 or 40 sports fans. We have them come into our software platform, and, and we have them make predictions together while AI or algorithms are watching uh, how they how they reach a decision, and this uh, our technology will basically amplify their collective intelligence. And so we had these uh, we had these uh, forty people predict you know who's going to win the NBA Finals, how many games it was going to take. Uh, we did it for a reporter, so we gave the, we gave the uh, the predictions to the reporter who wrote a story, uh, Golden State Warriors in six games, and and that's exactly what happened. And we see this happen a lot. We've uh, we've predicted uh, for a number of years in a row uh, the Super Bowl and and the Kentucky Derby and, uh, and and lots of different sporting events. We in fact uh, for last year's uh, and uh, NFL season we we used a group of sports fans. We predicted every single every single football game for the entire season. And this group of sports fans, when they came together in our software platform, was able to outperform Vegas. Uh, and, and basically beat all of the Vegas odds makers. And so w- what we do is we, we amplify human intelligence instead of replace human intelligence. And, and like you said, it could be, it could be used for uh, all kinds of things. We've, uh, we've used it for predicting elections. In the 2020 election, uh, we, uh, we gave predictions to the Wall Street Journal for, uh, for all of the battleground states of uh, – of the presidential election, and I think we got 10 out of the 11 battleground states correct, which was better than you know, traditional sure. polling. Sure, better than any poll uh, did. Yeah, so it's, uh, you know, we come from this philosophy that uh, that people are smart, and we work to use AI to, to amplify human intelligence as opposed to uh, what a lot of research is doing, uh, which is working to just replace people with with algorithms which has its own its own dangers sure, and uh, sure. and problems. Uh, last question, and this question may sound silly to some people, but you mentioned the the matrix, and th- there's a theory that we've talked about on this show before, and other people have written and spoken about, including people like Elon Musk, where uh, a lot of people believe that the world we're living in now, uh, you talking to me, the people listening to me right now, that this is actually some sort of a giant computer simulation, and that we're actually living in a computer simulation that somebody has been running for some purpose. Do you have a theory as to whether that's accurate or not? 
it, you know, it's one of these theories that's impossible to prove or disprove. So it's very interesting, but it's um, we will, you know, we will never know, uh, or at least not based. You know, we won't know anytime soon based on the, the technologies that we have. I think that it's um, it is certainly possible because we wouldn't know. And again, it goes back to this, you know, this technology of virtual reality. If if you were in a virtual environment that was so good that everything looked and sounded and felt exactly like it would in the real world, you couldn't tell the difference. And so um, if we're in that world, we just, we just wouldn't know by definition <laughs> of that world. Uh, do I think it's probable? I personally don't think it's probable. I think that, uh, that it is uh, just the simpler solution is more likely, which is that uh, the the real world is the real world, uh, but I cannot disprove the the possibility that it is a simulation. Well, we're going to have to end it there. Louis Rosenberg, thank you for a fascinating discussion, and uh, I'll look forward to chatting again in the future as we get closer and closer to everyone everyone walking around in these augmented reality glasses. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. WABC. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. You can um, see whatever music we're playing uh, by joining our Facebook group. Just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. And we post all of the bumper music selections in there each and every week. Now, yesterday my adventure was going to the DMV. Today I have two adventures I'm going to try for both, at least one. One is uh, I have to pick up the egg salad from my Aunt Camille. Now, hopefully, I'll. she lives in my neighborhood. I'll walk over there with my son. If he's not napping in the afternoon, she'll see the baby. I'll get to chat with her for a bit. We'll retrieve the egg salad, and we'll have some very happy workers here on the on the second floor who have become egg salad dependent. The other one is I'm supposed to go to the drugstore and pick up my psoriasis medication. Now, whenever I have to do a, a one task before I leave for work in the day, it's like a major accomplishment. If I can pull off two, that is very rare. I, I mean, prior to 10 p.m., I almost don't get a chance to 
leave the house these days, but uh, I'm going to work on it. All right, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let me begin with Ethel in Cloister, New Jersey. Oh, yep, yep, yep. Okay. I might not be too organized in my uh, my thoughts, but... Uh... Perfect. You fit right in. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, for instance, um, you, you talked about obesity before and why we have such obesity. A lot of it is because people are on their phones and now they're going to be on their glasses. <laughs> well, look, I, you, I, I get, see, you know, that's a good point. And it's a good point, Ethel. And I think video games are a big culprit here. And thanks for the call. I do think there are a lot of virtual ways of staying active. You know, I like to go to Atlantic City. And it's funny, I just wrote a memo for a friend of a friend, someone I've never met, of all the things that they should check out in Atlantic City. It's six pages. Six pages, I just wrote it. And one of the things that I mentioned was Top Golf. Uh, they have a virtual golf course at Ocean. And so that's a way of being active while utilizing virtual reality. So I think a lot of the point, uh, video games, I will acknowledge, are a culprit, but I think a lot of the culprit for children here is the decline of physical education in schools. I really do. 800-848-9222. Kevin is in New Jersey. Hello, Kevin. Hey, Frank. Yeah. Uh, You remember the movie The Jerk, Steve Martin? Love it. Great movie, right? Mm-hmm. Well, remember, he, he he invents the little handle on the front of the glasses, right? And you remember what happens. <laughs> right. Everybody becomes cross-eyed, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> so if you're staring in glasses all day and it's in, say, the corner of the glasses, this virtual stuff, and you're staring at that, it's not going to mess up your eyesight? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I mean, I don't know. And uh, that's certainly something that uh, I hope before if these glasses are released in the next year or the next two or three years, that's a question I'm going to be asking, and I would assume that's something that's going to be tested. It's a great question, though, Kevin. I'm sorry I didn't think to ask Lou Rosenberg that. That's a good one. 800-848-9222. Jeff is in Brooklyn Heights. Hello, Jeff. How are you, sir? Uh, I found your discussion very interesting and also very disturbing. First of all, uh this gentleman is overlooking a number of very, very critical things. The first thing is, number one, he's saying that you're going to have a continuous radio frequency and pulse magnetic source right next to your eyes and right next to your brain. What a good idea. There are hundreds of studies at this point to show the very serious health effects of something like that. That's the first thing. Mm-hmm. The second thing is, I don't know what reality this man is in, but... <laughs> The thing is, number one, a $20,000 EMP device over New York or or Kansas City and all this stuff is gone. Yeah, we've covered. He's he's trying to build a structure here, which is tremendously, has tremendous biologic questions. And second of all, has tremendous vulnerability questions. Uh, Thank you, Jeff. Look, we've covered the EMP issue uh, many times. I think that's a very real threat. As far as the health, as the health concerns, much like uh, Kevin's concerns about eyesight, I think that's something that these companies are going to have to answer for. Still a lot of concerns about, uh, about cell phones. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano.
Good morrow, everybody. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You know, one of the most important lessons um, that you can learn in life, one of the most important lessons that I learn literally every day, and it's a simplistic one, and it's one that your kindergarten teacher teaches you. It's one that at least my parents taught me. I assume many of your parents taught you this as well, but it happens to be um, very true. There are two sides to every story, and we see this all the time. We saw this when uh, Nicholas Sandman was initially, it looked like he was mocking some American Indian people in Washington, D.C. that turned out to be um, very inaccurate, to say the least. It looked like the exact opposite happened. We saw that with the Jussie Smollett case when uh, Kamala Harris and others were rushing to portray him as some sort of a victim of some Trump-loving white supremacist. We see this again and again. We've seen this with various videos of purported police misconduct, which when you see the full video or hear the full story, it's a very different situation. We've seen it with um, a sanitation worker in in New York who was either fined or fired for taking a tip. Looked like there was much more to the story. And... I think the story that I'm about to tell you is another instance of the perils of rushing to judgment. I don't know if you remember this story. Back in April, there was a story uh, about a six-year-old kid that was set on fire by bullies. And I saw the, at the time in April, I saw the video of this child being bandaged and badly burned. And I, I, I'm i pretty sure I cried at the time. I'll tell you what I did do. I denounced the bullies that did this to him. And I really felt such horror that one human being, even a child, could do this to another innocent little child. Well, now the mother of the Connecticut child who was accused of setting this six-year-old boy on fire is speaking out, and they are ripping the family of this six-year-old boy. And they've now released a video which tells a very different side of the story. The New York Post has this story today. Maybe you've seen it. If not, I've linked to it on my Facebook page. Facebook.com slash Morano fan. The six-year-old boy that was set on fire was a a boy by the name of Dominic Crankle. Okay. The mother of the child who was accused of setting this six-year-old on fire, she wants the burned boy's family punished after newly released video contradicts their claims. Laura Giacobbe did an interview with the New York Post. What day is today? Wednesday? Yesterday. She did an interview with the New York Post yesterday, and you can see the highlights in this article that I just uh, shared, and you could even see a link to uh, to the video. But she did this interview with the New York Post, and now I am doubting very much what the family of this six-year-old says. The police 
in Connecticut have confirmed there was no evidence of foul play. That's the first thing you need to understand. Dominic Crankle, six years old, suffered second and third degree burns back in April after an incident in which his family claimed an eight-year-old neighbor grabbed gasoline and a lighter from a shed before coaxing the boy to come near him. Aaron Crankle, Dominic's father, again, Dominic is the six-year-old boy who was set on fire. Aaron Crankle said his son told him some boys had set him on fire. And this, first of all, I just, I still look at photos of this boy and I and I can't do it. It it sends a shiver up my spine because even though my son's only seven months old, I just picture him being in a position where he's burned by another child. And it just, it makes me want to weep. But now the video that was released Friday by one of the accused boys' families shows four children, including Dominic, who was the one that was lit on fire, lighting fires. Okay, I want to reiterate that. It shows all four children, including Dominic, lighting fires and then kicking a flaming soccer ball in a Bridgeport backyard where the six-year-old even wiped the flammable remnants on his pants. The mom of one of the other kids, meaning one of the accused bullies here, said they were interacting in the backyard being boys, Laura Jacoby said. Then Dominic caught fire after either kicking or stepping on a plastic cup filled with gasoline that was on fire. But nothing in the video shows the other boys targeting Dominic, who's been released from the hospital, thankfully. The footage shows Dominic stumbling to the ground, but not being doused with any gasoline. And as the mom of this other boy says, Dominic was not left there to die. My 11-year-old son, Lorenzo, saved him, took his bare hands and took the fire out on his face. And it does appear like the video bears that out. Police said uh, on June 10th that no evidence was found that Dominic had been bullied or deliberately targeted by other children. This is what the Bridgeport police said. The video footage recorded four children, ages 6, 7, 8, and 11, playing together in the backyard. At least three of the children, ages 6, 7, and 8, were observed playing with fire and gasoline. By the way, quick aside, this is why children shouldn't play with fire. I mean, this is what happens. People get burned and and are very seriously injured. Police said the investigation is still ongoing with additional interviews needing to be conducted. But Giacobbe, again, the mother of one of the boys of, that was accused of bullying, says the new footage clears her son. The family had been getting threats from strangers after the story. This is what the mom told the New York Post. Or uh, actually, this was WFSB. The police department had to sit in front of the home overnight to make sure nothing happened. It was stated the house would be lit on fire. They were going to drag my son and myself down the street and let us suffer from the pain. Now, Giacobbe is considering legal action, and she's hired a lawyer who said Dominic was not lured by some pyromaniac bullies. For closure... For the truth now, for closure, I want this out there so I can have this out there. 
come out with the truth and not use their child for money. This is sickening. Very sad that you can wrap a child and lie all over the world. Now, again, I'm sure if the mom of the burned child was here, maybe I would think differently. But I got to tell you, after looking at this video and after listening to what the mother is saying of the accused boy, I, I tend to agree with her. Now, there was a GoFundMe, which is an online fundraiser for Dominic, this little boy. It has raised nearly $600,000. He thanked his supporters in a video that was posted last week to Facebook. Um, $600,000. Thanks for the prayers that made me feel so well and all the gifts. And thanks for the money to buy a house. I love you all. Um. It's funny, uh, this, I, the mom is sticking with her story. She said, look, this is not what I'm saying. This is what my son is saying, and I believe my son. 800-848-WABC. Curious what you think about this. The mom of the accused boy is saying that uh, they should have to give some of this, they should have to give this money back. And she is saying it's not right that the burned boy was was paraded out as uh, essentially a hero and a victim and a symbol for all these bullied children out there and uh, being given an opportunity to go to Yankee games and things of that nature, whereas her son was getting death threats. And I got to tell you, I do feel for her son here. So... um and by the way, uh, Jacoby, Laura Jacoby, said that Dominic's mom, Dominic is the burned boy, Maria Rua, her former neighbor, was supposed to be watching the kids at the time, including her sons, her eight year old, and her 11 year old on the day of the incident. So at the same time, she was making a call to the, uh, this is what a quote from the mom I saw Maria by the sink wiping the child's face with a wash rag and seeing the skin come off his face because she was wiping it. I was screaming to her that he needed to get into the tub because his leg was on fire and she wasn't aware of that. At the same time, she was making calls to the, um, making a phone call to the police department stating that the eight-year-old boy downstairs took gasoline, poured it on my child, and lit him on fire. Those were her exact words. That's a quote from the mom. Now, the Crankles, again, the Crankles are... The family that's, you know, that had the six-year-old boy set on fire. The Crankles said that Jacoby's son Stefano doused a ball in gasoline, lit it on fire, then threw it at Dominic's face in a vicious act of bullying that rattled their town and sparked a police investigation. The mom of Stefano is saying that's not true. She's saying that's complete fiction and that this surveillance footage shows the kids playing peacefully all day long, and it proves that what happened was just a horrible accident. Uh, There's a quote from the mom. They were playing, riding bikes. There was no bullying at all with the children. My child, Stefano Giacobbe, is not a bully. Um, I'm curious of what you think of this whole situation. I mean, first of all, it's just horrible that uh, this little boy was so badly hurt. I don't know that he's ever going to fully recover from this. And I think he's had to get skin grafts and things of that nature. But I'm not sure why 
this boy's mother, if the other boy's mother is telling the truth here and the video seems to support it. And But again, sometimes videos and sometimes photographic evidence can be deceiving. I'm not sure why she would look, rush to blame her neighbor's son unless she thought that would make it a more sympathetic story and maybe be easier to raise money. But um, it, look, I think if there was any truth to her story of her son being bullied, the police would have said so. The police are saying publicly there was no foul play. Now, the police have no incentive to lie. I, I tend to agree that this video does exonerate the Jacobis. Now, remember at the time, Bridgeport's mayor, the first responders, dozens of community members, they hosted a parade outside of the hospital where Dominic was recovering. And as I said, this online fundraiser has so far raised nearly $600,000 for his family. Is this an instance? Uh, because think about if if what Laura Giacobbe is saying is true, then you had a mother either make up a story or promote a story that her six-year-old son made up. You had her abdicate her responsibility to watch over four children. And um, you had them use her son's injury for money. Uh, Maybe there's more to it. You can see the article that I've just posted from the New York Post on my Facebook page. You could read it for yourself and make whatever judgments that you will. But if what is coming to light here appears to be appears to be um, accurate, then this is pretty devastating on the part of this boy's mother. What do you think? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Let me begin with JR in Brooklyn. Hello, JR. Good morning, Frank. This is uh, clearly it's terrible, the physical toll that this child's probably going to have to face for the rest of his life. But Let's be realistic here. Number one, how this happened months ago. Is that correct? April, yes. April. Okay, so what are we looking at? Three three whole months? About about, about two months. It happened April 24th. Today's June 22nd. They released the video uh, a few days ago. So figure it's just shy of two months. Right. So that video is definitely not shy of two months old. That video, they had possession of the police department and any investigating bodies definitely had that video for a long time now. Well, what the what the mother is saying is that the police asked that her not to release the video until they had concluded their investigation. I don't know if that's true, but that's what she's saying. Right. And as someone who investigates not necessarily justice, but investigates issues like this right away, you can't have someone. They knew right away. So, Number two, the yeah, the ahead. problem with um, I'm sorry. Also, the problem with things like um, GoFundMe, where funds become immediately uh, accessible before all the facts come out. Right. Now, this woman's not responsible to return any of that money. Right. Um, and the other woman's son is 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 has his reputation destroyed. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, what GoFundMe is saying is uh, they're saying basically 
that uh, so far the fundraiser is within GoFundMe's terms of service. This is what she said. She put out a quote. Our hearts go out to Dominic as he continues to recover. And then she said, our platform is backed by the GoFundMe giving guarantee, which protects donors and their generosity. If any donor would like to request a refund, we will process it for them. That's what they're saying. Okay, but does that money come from GoFundMe, or does that money come from the woman who got the money? Well, see, it's not really clear to me, uh, to be honest. And then she continued her statement. She said, it's important to remember our team of trust and safety experts proactively monitors our platform for any form of misuse, investigates all reported issues, and also works with law enforcement on any investigations they deem necessary. Now, Giacobbe, the mom that's of the accused boy, said um, that this was created under false pretenses, and she's calling it sickening. So I'm curious what everybody else thinks. 800-848-WABC. Eddie is in Brooklyn. Hello, Eddie. How are you doing? Good morning. Morning. You know, I'm listening to it. They just uh, paid attention. Um, This is unbelievable. You don't know until you find out the real truth as what happened in Texas. You see the video. You see the police was waiting for uh, over uh, 70 minutes until they did something about it. So this is the thing. You know, sometimes you you listen to stories and you you think something is happening until you really find out that it's completely opposite. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying, Eddie. That's why I began with my, my comments with this is yet another example that a lot of times there's more than meets the eye. 800-848-WABC. Any other subject is fair game as well. Patricia is on Staten Island. Hello, Patricia. Hi, how are you? Good, thanks. Um, I'm just calling you about the children, about the obesity problem that is really rising in the United States now. And the obesity problem also relates to the depression, their diet. And it's very important. I think we have to encourage the mothers today to really get more involved. I know most mothers work today. Time is limited. But if they could afford a swimming pool, it doesn't have to be a large one. That's great exercise for them. And also, there's so many other things they could do. I mean, I know everything costs money. Money is tight. But I always say, you know what? You want to walk and have exercise? Get a little dog or a big dog, whatever your thing is, and have the child incorporates responsibility. They increase their self-esteem. You know, they're doing things like that and, and so many other things. And I think it's important to keep them busy because when you're in the home, just like me and you, anybody else, what do we look like that? We look at the refrigerator more so anything to eat. And a lot of people think, I know I'm Italian. Everything was like, you don't feel good. Oh, eat. You'll feel better. (laughs) And and if something is not going well, they use food to console you, uh, get through the loss of a loved one or a tough time. Great points, Patricia. I agree with you. That's a great strategy for a lot of parents. trying to keep them away from the computer. I know my daughter has an 11-year-old. She just got a nice pool and I encouraged her. I said, go away for a few days because this child's 11 years old. And you know, she said to me, Nana, I'm depressed. My heart is breaking because with the COVID, they really, nobody wants to come over still with somebody's house, you know, and that, and this is why my daughter purchased this pool with a heater and this and that. Thank God she has the money. 
she can do this. And she said then they have something to do, the kids, rather than just coming from one house to another. You know, and there's a lot of other things. But I think I know it's hard for the parents. Say I was a single mom and it was hard. But I think we have to work even harder today with our children you know, to have them become healthy because that obesity leads to di- it leads to diabetes. It can lead to so many other things, even their mental status. Absolutely, absolutely. Great points and, all, Patricia. And being teased, you know, being teased fat. I was teased in, in junior high because I, I was small-breasted. They used to call me flat chest and tin mouth for my braces. Well, then... Yeah, they're saying, uh, and thanks, Patricia, these researchers from the uh, University of Georgia are saying that the bullying actually could play a role in the level of physical activity that these children are getting. So it's sort of a, if this research is to be believed, it's sort of a a bizarre, bizarrely vicious cycle. 800-848-9222. We'll continue with your calls in just a minute. You're welcome to comment on anything we've covered thus far. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. Great, Stevie Wonder. Uh, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano, and um, if you ever want to know what music we're playing, just join our Facebook group. Just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook, or just go directly to Facebook.com/groups/Radio Morano. Meantime, uh, I have been updating you about the various health ailments of um, two thirds of our cats, and uh, so my cat. Our cat, Bathsheba, is uh, my wife's favorite cat, and she is a delightful companion. She is just incredibly kind. She, will, If you're a stranger or somebody that comes over all the time, she'll give you the same uh, warmth, and she's just delightful. Our other cat, Melchizedek, only likes Rachel and me. He's very warm with us, doesn't like anybody else. Our third cat, Prissy, she doesn't even let me pet her. If she sees me walking towards her, she runs away. She's afraid, literally, of her own shadow. She gets along with, with the other cats, especially Melky, but, and she gets along with Rachel most of the time, but she doesn't get along with any other human being, including me. So Bathsheba is the favorite, and I've been explaining how Bathsheba has been losing weight. And so they went. she went for an exam and uh, I think it was the the sonogram. And finally, yesterday, my wife heard back from, on the results. And we tried a different cat food for her. 
And we tried all sorts of other things because her levels were normal. Her levels were normal. And essentially, uh, they said there's something going on with her intestines. There's a hardening of her intestines, and there's some other problems with her digestive tract. They think that this could be maybe irritable bowel syndrome, or it could be lymphoma. Now, in both cases, either case rather, she's going to need um, steroids. If it's lymphoma, then she's going to need chemotherapy. So um, the game plan is on Thursday, and I feel so bad for this cat because she's just such a, a, a sweet cat. She's even nice to the vet who causes her a lot of discomfiture. So on Thursday, the plan is to take Bathsheba to the veterinarian, and she's going to have to get a biopsy. So they're going to have to basically cut her open and take a portion of her intestines where a lot of the um, irregularity and the hardening and the uh, the problems seem to have been, and they're going to test it for anything cancerous. And then if they find it's lymphoma, then we're going to have to begin steroids and chemotherapy. If they find it's not lymphoma, then it could be irritable bowel syndrome or um, some other thing that's causing hardening. I don't remember. I don't have all the terminology committed to memory. I don't know. I don't even know about human medical stuff, let alone cat medical stuff. So that's where we are now. Now, aside from the emotional toll here, which is significant for both my wife and our cat, but uh, and even for me, quite frankly, because I'm quite fond of this this cat as well. Uh, and it's very sad to see this cat who's eating and has a very healthy appetite. It's very sad to see her still losing weight. She's already lost a third of her body weight. So um, aside from that, there's a significant financial toll here. And we have insurance for this cat. But uh, at least the bill, and I'm not sure how much of this insurance is going to cover, I, I don't think, for some reason, my wife was saying it may not be covered by a lot of the pet insurance. Some of her previous examinations have been covered by the pet insurance and the previous medication that she's been on ha- and uh, has been covered by pet insurance. Meanwhile, our other cat is too old and has diabetes, so he's not. he's got a pre-existing condition. He, we have to just pay out of pocket for him. But this biopsy is going to be this biopsy that we're taking the cat for on Thursday, $1,400, $1,400. And, um, of course, you got to pay it. You wouldn't even think to not pay it because, you know, it's like a member of your family. But one day someone, maybe it'll be me, has got to do an an expose on the incredible costs of veterinary health care. Because people, these vets know that people will pay anything to help their pets or to save their pets or to have a chance at saving their pets or, in our case, just to know what's wrong with our pet. And uh, I really um, – something's got to be done here because this is – this year alone, we've spent thousands of dollars on veterinary health care, thousands. And it's thousands of dollars we don't have, quite frankly. So it's um, it's sad. Uh, hopefully, hopefully this will be a breakthrough, though, and we'll know 
what the problem is with Bathsheba and uh, we'll be able to get her the treatment that uh, that she needs. So we'll see. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. You're welcome to comment on anything, uh, anything that we've covered thus far. Let me say hello to Charles in Queens. Hello, Charles. Good morning. Good morning, Frank. Um, I want to make a comment basically about, the, was it Louis Rosenberg, I think, uh, about AI and all this augmented uh, mm-hmm. technology and mm-hmm. so on, which I found fascinating and informational, really very interesting. Um, but first I want to say I don't know why people have a problem with overeating, with becoming obese. The only time I overeat is when I'm in a good mood, bad mood, or in between. <laughs> so no problem. Anyways, with with the AI thing, um, I'm wondering, were they allowed, being that they were able to predict infinitely better than any human being, uh, racetracks, whatever, uh, elections and so on. So I'm interested if they were allowed to bet in Vegas or wherever you bet, and if they did bet, and also what their conclusion might have been or was regarding the 2020 elections. I'm also wondering, probably even today, you can do videos and make it look real, you know, talking about the fire thing. I imagine even today you probably can do it. I don't know much about technology, but you could make things not true look 100% true, no? Or maybe well, in the yes, future you, you definitely you, you, would be able to do yeah, that. Yeah, no, you can. That confuse everyone. You can. They call I them. I asked a whole bunch of questions. No, but, no, they um, call them deep fakes, but I think if, the, if there was any allegation or if there was any chance that this video was fake, I think the police would have would have said so. Uh, assuming they know about the latest technology, they could be two weeks ahead of them. You know, I'm just saying it's like it's moving at such a rapid pace. The the latest technology is just mind blowing. Well, uh, it could be. It could be. I, I don't see that happening here, to be honest. I mean, that doesn't this looks like you're p- pretty stale. Uh, you know, I, I didn't really mean this particular case I right. mean in general. Though. No, no, no. You're right. I mean, that's a cause for that's certainly a cause for uh, for concern. No doubt about it. Can't disagree with that. And what do you think about the election with they or, or whatever with, with these people that had an edge over everyone allowed to bet? And what did they I'm just curious, uh, the 2020 election, what it showed? Yeah, uh, so uh, I'm I'm not sure I follow the the question, Charles. Uh, I what were, what were they predi- their prediction on the um, the latest election, Biden against Trump in 2024 or 2020? No, 2020. Uh, 20. Well, so they they went state by state, and as he said, they went through the 11 battleground states, and they the artificial intelligence uh, ha- predicted the winner correctly in 10 of the 11 states. I don't know which state they got wrong, but they got 10 out of the 11 states right, which is more than I think just about any pollster did. Uh, a lot of the pollsters had uh, Biden states going for Trump and Trump states going for, for Biden, for whatever that's worth. 800-848-9222. Michael is in Manhattan. Hello, Michael. Hi, Frank. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, there are so many different topics that you've brought up over the last hour and a half, but I'm going to focus on cats. You mentioned uh, your own cat. Yes. Well, my cat was diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome, and I got the diagnosis from the vet, but the treatment I'm getting from a book uh, called The New Natural Cat, it's uh, written by a woman named Anitra Frazier with 
She also worked in consultation with a holistic veterinarian. Okay, and, wh- and what sort of treatment do you give? Well, first of all, you avoid avoid steroids and avoid chemicalized uh, toxic medications. And uh, it's, a, it's a gamut of uh, different medicines, natural medicines. There's slippery elm herb. There's uh, chlorophyll. There's uh, vitamin and mineral supplement. There's a homeopathic uh, digestive medicine. It's a it's a spectrum of medicines, but the idea is to avoid steroids and very chemi- these are very toxic chemical medications that suppress the immune system. So uh, my cat is responding to it, thank God. But uh, as as far as the financial cost, I also have insurance. And of course, there's a deductible on the insurance. But um, I'm very concerned about the health of animals. I happen to be a big lover of animals. I've had my cat for 17 years. I adopted her 17 years ago, and I live alone. She's been a, virtually a lifesaver for me. She's actually uh, helped me to survive loneliness and isolation. It's very easy to be alone in a city of 8 million people. <laughs> Anyway, my cat has been a lifesaver, so I did not want her to be inflicted. I didn't, know, I didn't want to inflict on her steroids and chemicalized medications. So I used this book, and it's a little bit of work involved because you're using the spectrum of natural medicine. Right. Well, you know, we are going to have to do this biopsy anyway to see if it's uh, cancer or not uh, before we decide on a course of treatment. But, you know, again, I'll say with, with cats the same thing that, I've said previously about humans is, you know, you have to find someone that you trust. Right. And uh, I think my wife trusts this particular vet. She did not trust the vet at the emergency animal hospital that we had taken Melchizedek to. And she didn't feel that the quality of care that we had gotten from the emergency animal hospital was was uh, adequate. But when they're the only ones open, what are you supposed to do? If there's an emergency, there's an emergency, right? But look, uh, I'm not going to tell people what kind of uh, what kind of course of treatment they should pursue because I don't know. What do I know? I'm not a veterinarian, I'm not a holistic healer. But let's see what this diagnosis is Thursday after this biopsy, and then we'll cross that bridge uh, when we come to it. But we have the name of that book now, and uh, I will encourage uh, Rachel to take a look at it. And if there's a way that we can treat her through some combination of herbs that don't avoid steroids, then uh, I think that's great. But um, sometimes there's a lot of temptation to go towards the holistic end of things, and sometimes you need Western medicine. You know, Curtis, when he first had prostate cancer, he was trying to go, because his sister is very into holistic healing and herbs and things like that, he was trying to go the holistic route. Didn't work. He was at one event when he almost doubled over in pain. He ultimately chose to get surgery. So sometimes holistic healing can work. Sometimes you need conventional medicine, both for humans and cats. You look at um, the fellow Steve Jobs from Apple. And when he was trying to battle, I think it was pancreatic cancer, he tried uh, a strategy that eschewed Western conventional medicine. Did not work out well for him either. So... Everybody should do what they think works for them, right? Uh, I think my wife is comfortable with this, with this vet. We'll see what this vet says, but I will also encourage her to take a look at that book. 800-848-9222. Uh, 
Uh, Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, Rick. Yes, good morning, Frank. Morning. Excuse me. Um, yeah, about the cost of vets, I would love to hear a segment on that because uh, I have several cats and no insurance. <clears throat> One of them had a urinary blockage not too long ago, and I had to drive him up to the emergency thing. $1,900 just to admit him. Yeah. Without any – nothing done. That's just 1900 to admit him. Then they started adding on – it's already cost me over $6,000. And he's not really better. He's kind of like better, but he's not cured. And and I, 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 it, 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 why is it so expensive? Why nineteen hundred? I mean, it cost that costs more than a colonoscopy. I know, I know, I know. Yeah, that, that's what I'm saying. Is I think we as a country, and this is the issue that whether it's on a state level or a federal level, I don't know that I've heard any politician really make getting control of veterinary costs a part of their platform you hear a lot of people and and, you know people have different solutions some you know you might agree with some you might not agree with but a lot of people talk about health care costs for humans you know you hear on the left single-payer health care you hear on the right medical savings accounts you hear on the left um you know covering prescription drugs and uh you hear on the right um you know capping tort reform you hear on both the left and the right having uh, the government use the purchasing power for Medicare to negotiate prices with drug companies, something I think is a very good idea, by the way. I don't hear anything in terms of somebody making veterinary costs a big part of their platform. You know, whatever happens in 2024, first of all, I can't believe it looks like Biden is running again, but it does look like he's running again. I'm amazed by that, quite frankly. And I, if I were betting, and I am a better, I would bet Biden doesn't ultimately run again. I can't see how the party's going to let him run again. But whether it's Biden or Kamala Harris or Pete Buttigieg or Elizabeth Warren uh, or whoever they're else talking about on the Democratic side, Jay Inslee, Amy Globuchar, uh, Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, whomever, or whether it's somebody on the right like Donald Trump or Mike Pence or Mike Pompeo or Ron DeSantis or Chris Christie or Larry Hogan or Nikki Haley or anybody that they're talking about, right? or some of the centrist candidates that they're talking about, folks like Andrew Yang uh, or uh, Mark Cuban, whomever. This should be a part of any presidential candidate's platform in 2024 is getting a hold of these veterinary costs because this is crazy. This is crazy that... American consumers are forced to pay all this stuff, and you really hear very little in terms of a public policy discussion about how to how to get a hold of these costs. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. Lois is in Cranford, New Jersey. Hello, Lois. Hello. Um, I've had cats since 1962, and I'm also a nurse. I can tell you that when a, when a cat starts to lose that much weight, it's not a good thing. Um, I'm so sorry. I, I really, really feel bad for you. Um, it's going to be either diabetes, which they probably already they, yeah, ruled Yeah, they out. tested for and ruled that out, yeah. Okay, and thyroid, which they ruled out with blood, no doubt. Right. And after that, irritable bowel could be a possibility, but it's usually cancer. Um, to subject a cat to surgeries and chemotherapy, that's something that, you know, that's your personal decision, but that's 
kind of torturous for an animal. A vet will do what the pharmaceutical companies and what the vet community tells them to do through medical science, which is everything, just like a human. They'll go the gambit for everything. They're not going to say, you know, just let the cat peacefully live its course, keep it comfortable at home. And that's my suggestion. The outcome, unfortunately, once a cat starts to lose weight, I've never seen a cat that lost that much body weight that did not have cancer or didn't have something that was, you know, like diabetes or thyroid. So it's up to you, but everybody has to make that personal decision. Sometimes you have to think about the discomfort of the cat. Well, let's see what this uh, biopsy shows on Thursday. I know you're going to do it anyway. I know, but the, it, that's well, I mean, you're not suggesting you, that we don't get the biopsy, are you? I, I am. Yes, I really? am. Really? Yes, I am. Yes, I think it's absolutely ridiculous. I think I've had I've had so many cats, and I've cried so many tears. I can't even tell you. I've gone both routes. I can tell you when a cat is is going to end its life soon. Just by looking at it and touching the cat, I could tell you, I told my son last year, um, the vet did the same exact thing to my son's cat. They do put them on steroids when they have cancer. My son said, oh, oh, he's so much better. He's, yeah, he'll be better. The cat will be better for a week or two. And then if it's cancer, the cat will die. I'm so sorry. My heart's broken. I know nobody wants to hear this, but I get I get infuriated with what vets do. Well, I hear I, you, and I, I I do think uh, that the the vets do take advantage of um, of people's feelings here. I, I don't see just because and and thank you for the call, Lois, and I appreciate your wisdom on that one. But I, I don't see the value in not finding out whether it's cancer or not. Uh, so. The cat, our cat Bathsheba, is still in a great mood. She's got a great temperament. Her behavior seems exactly the same. She still likes to play. She still likes to uh, be held by humans. She still likes to cuddle up to humans. She still likes to go outside in the backyard uh, and sun herself. So her behavior has not changed at all. I don't know if it would change if it was lymphoma, but to me... I mean, I hate to see her get a surgical biopsy here, but I don't see any way that we avoid that at this point. I don't see, first of all, whether I see it doesn't matter because the final arbiter of what the cat's care will be my wife. And there's no way my wife is not going to find out whether this is cancer or not. So we'll see. 800-848-9222, WABC. Al is in Fort Lauderdale. Hello, Al. Good morning, Frank. I just wanted to talk a little bit about the uh, the burn situation with that uh, six-year-old boy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who took the video? It's a surveillance video. It's like um, if you have a ring camera, how um, you know you, you you have a video at your you know of what's happening in your uh, front yard like or backyard, at your door or your house right. or whatever, something like that. And who soaked the ball uh, with gasoline? It looked. I mean, based on uh, I don't know, but it looks like all four of these kids did. It looks like they were playing. With this gasoline, and uh, they they all participated in um, in playing with fire, basically. Well, I would just say that uh, that GoFundMe page is, I assume, to be used for the 
uh, rehabilitation of that child, I imagine the expenses will be incredible. And uh, it's an interesting to think that the, the other mother thinks that uh, the mother of the child or the family of the child is going to prosper from it. Well, they've already gotten uh, a new house um, and uh, they've moved into a new house. So, I mean, in some to some extent, they have. Uh, this is a um, a city which, uh, you know, the, the I don't know what kind of particular house they had, but it was this is a city that. Uh, doesn't exactly have five or six hundred thousand dollar, you know, super nice houses. So I, I have a feeling this this family did move, did significantly improve their living situation. Although I don't know that for a fact. Al, thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Those of you that are holding, uh, please continue to hold. I'll get to you as soon as we can. In the meantime, I do want to take a look at the final. Republican debate for governor last night. I only saw about 15 minutes of it, so I don't I'm not going to offer too much in the way of commentary on it because there's nothing worse than people that haven't seen something giving their opinion on it, which I am not about to do. Uh, I'll tell you my impressions of it based on the 15, 20 minutes of it that I saw. And we'll play you some highlights uh, in just a moment. This is the other side of midnight. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. song Crossroad Blues by uh, Robert Johnson, I think going all the way back to the 30s. Uh, this song is considered one of the most influential blues songs of all time. Uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame listed another version of Crossroad, uh, Crossroads as one of the 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. And um, this is uh, Robert Johnson's version, but it's been covered many times over the course of the last 80 years. All right, yesterday was your final opportunity to hear, at least in a debate format, the Republicans running for governor of New York. Uh, I didn't watch the whole thing because um, we had a guest over, and then my wife has had it up to here with my forcing her to watch all these debates. So I took pity on her, and we watched something else. And... um, I did see about 15 minutes of it, and again, I thought Rob Astorino came across very well, and I think uh, Andrew Giuliani came across really well. I thought Lee Zeldin came across pretty poorly. 
Um, I thought Harry Wilson performed well, but because he is a little bit more liberal than the other three candidates, I don't think the message that he put out there in this debate is necessarily going to help him gain any votes in a Republican primary, if that makes sense. Unless people are just looking for electability. If you're looking for a candidate that's the most electable out of the four, quite frankly, I think the only one that's electable is Harry Wilson because he's pro-choice. He got booed for that yesterday. And uh, because he's the only one that didn't vote for Donald Trump. So um, either of those things are going to hurt you in a general election in New York, but they also hurt you in a Republican primary. So I think Astorino honestly has acquitted himself very well in this race, both in the interviews that he did, he's done on shows like this one and in these debates. But I'll tell you what I liked about this format. Now, obviously, this was a very different type of format than the previous two debates that we've seen, one of which was on Channel 2, one of which was on New York 1, because Eric Bowling was really gearing the questions to conservatives. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Because it's Republicans and conservatives that are going to be the ones voting in this. So they're not as concerned with issues like January 6th and uh, uh, climate change, for instance. Those are just two off the top of my head. As sent, as uh, general election voters might be or as Democratic primary voters might be. I think that the New York 1 debate and the Channel 2 debate, and I think there were very good moderators in both debates – I think if there was one fault in both debates, aside from the idiocy of having Andrew Giuliani in a separate room, but I think that if there was one fault, it was that they were not gearing the questions to the kind of questions that conservatives and Republicans wanted to hear, whereas Eric Bowling did do that. So I think he did a very good job in kind of knowing your audience here. Uh, Rob Astorino, as I mentioned, I think did very well. By the way, if you saw this debate on Newsmax, uh, it was the first time on a national audience as well, I'd love to hear your thoughts. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. I think uh, Astorino did very well. He um, was speaking here about the issue of inflation. Well, I did this. In Westchester, as I mentioned, we held the line on spending, which meant we had to cut hundreds of millions of dollars out of the budget to stay at $1.8 billion for all eight years. And that allowed us to cut property taxes. We worked with all of our businesses, big and small, so they could prosper in Westchester County. And that's something we have to do here in New York. And unfortunately, you know, we go back to the Cuomo years and the Hochul years now. This train has been out of control for so long. And unfortunately, it was people in the state Senate, in New York, in Albany, like Lee Zeldin, who were voting for the Cuomo budgets the entire time that got us to this point. Unfortunately, that train was put on that track, and it was kept by the conductor, Lee Zeldin, and Andrew Cuomo. And that's where we are today, where we are. $40 billion additional in the last two years in our budgets in in, uh, New York, and that means we have the highest taxes. I will cut taxes, including the estate tax for our farmers and small businesses, corporate taxes, income taxes, And, yes, I already did it. I cut property taxes in Westchester, and we'll do that in New York. So you heard he kind of took a shot at Zeldin there. Zeldin uh, responded in in kind when he uh, made his answer on inflation. We have to bring down spending. Uh, We have to cut taxes across the board. One of the ways that we can help revitalize local economies 
uh, to create jobs, to generate revenue. We should reverse the state's ban on the safe extraction of natural gas. It's important for the southern tier. It's important for other counties that want it. We have pipeline applications right now in Albany that are collecting dust, being delayed, denied, that instead should be getting approved. Right now, we have one party rule. Kathy Hochul is going to get fired November 8th. I'm looking forward to removing her from this office. One party rule, they want to next ban all gas hookups on new construction statewide. I care about the future of the state. I am all in on this rescue mission to save our state. Unfortunately, what you just heard was untrue from Mr. Astorino. One, I never once voted for Cuomo's proposed budget. And secondly, uh, when Mr. Astorino was the county executive, he got run out. Because the deficit and debt went up, the cash reserves plummeted, the bond rating went down, and the sewer fund ended up owing tens of billions of dollars to the general fund. He forgot to mention all that. He's actually lost three consecutive races for three different offices, and he's trying to get your vote so, once so again. That, that was a pretty good indication of the back and forth between Zeldin and Astorino. Here's both of them going at it on uh, Zeldin's record on the Cuomo budgets. Before I go to Mr. Giuliani, Mr. Astorino, do you want to respond? Oh, yeah, I think I do. You know, to say that you didn't vote for the Cuomo budgets is Is true. It's incomprehensible. But it's true. Look it up, folks, because the executive, which I was, has to give the budget, and then the legislature votes on that budget, which he did. So every year he voted I when Cuomo said, this is what you're going to do. The problem that we've been facing in New York is... We've had the establishment, the status quo, the get-along, go-along crowd, like Lee Zeldin in Albany when he was in the state Senate majority, but every time he was a reliable vote for right. Andrew right. Cuomo. No, Actually, there'll be, there'll that's be not plenty of time, time, there'll be plenty of time to get further into this, guys. Fifteen seconds. Fifteen seconds to Lee. Okay, so when they tried that last week, uh, these guys ended up getting fact-checked by Politico. They did the research. And Politico found that out of 63 New York state senators, there are only two state senators who voted against Andrew Cuomo more than I did. All right. Out of 63 state senators, only two voted against him more than I did. All right. uh, your reaction, give me a call, 800-848-9222. Until then, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, by the way, we were just playing you some cuts of last night's gubernatorial debate. I just want to remind people, early voting is going on now. And the uh, turnout so far in both the Democrat and Republican primary has been absolutely anemic. And, you know, one thing I do think is a factor is you know, the Board of Elections sends these postcards to everybody. And one listener pointed out that maybe it makes it look like you have until August to vote, when in actuality the primary is six days from today. You only have until June 28th to vote. I think that is probably a uh, a factor here in why nobody's exactly rushing to the polls. Also, it could be that aside from Wilson and Zeldin on the Republican side, most of these candidates don't have the money to get out their vote. 
So I am interested to see now that Wilson is upping his sort of TV and radio buys, if we're going to see um, any sort of an uptick in turnout. Because so far, nobody's showing up. Curious if uh, these debates have affected your vote at all. 800-848-9222. By the way, my, a, a couple of people just wrote to me and asked me to explain who was telling the truth there, Astorino or Zeldin. The truth is both of them and neither. Okay, both Astorino and Wilson hammered Zeldin on his vote when Zeldin was in the state Senate. And the bottom line, Zeldin did vote for the final budget. So the way the way that Albany's budget process works is the governor proposes a budget each January. And usually the governor makes a big address with all his priorities for the year. The governor proposes a budget. Then the Senate and the Assembly pass their own one-house budgets, which basically have no practical effect at all. It's basically a starting point. So you have three starting points. The Assembly is here, the Senate is here, and the governor's here. And then from there, the Senate and the Assembly leaders meet with the governor to negotiate a final budget plan in March. That's the process that was in place for the four years that Zeldin was in the state Senate while Cuomo was governor, 2011 through 2014, Zeldin voted for the final budget. So there was no separate vote on Cuomo's budget, and he did vote for the state Senate Republican budget, but there was one vote on the budget, and that budget was negotiated by Cuomo, Dean Skelos, and the leaders of the state assembly, Shelley, uh, Shelley Silver, and then ultimately uh, Carl Hasty. So he did vote on the budget that the Senate Republicans negotiated with Andrew Cuomo. That's a fact. And I, I don't know why Zeldin, um, you know, I mean, and by the way, Cuomo's budgets in his first term were actually pretty good. He got very high reviews for actually trying to reduce spending and taxes. It wasn't really until the latter part of the first term and his second term that he went really crazy um, in terms of raising taxes. But uh, I don't think Zeldin or Astorino are being entirely truthful. But uh, as so often happens in campaigns, sometimes the truth gets lost in the effort to make the other guy look bad. Isn't that a shame? All right. Moving to the state of New Jersey, there's another pet-related issue. If you want to comment on the debate, you're welcome to, 800-848-9222. Moving to the state of New Jersey, there's another pet-related issue that uh, has gotten a lot of attention. Fanwood, New Jersey, is a borough in Union County, and they have a, a rule banning pets from parks. This is amazing to me. I had no idea this was in ca- the case, and it's been in place for 20 years. Chapter 118, Section 23. They're looking to amend the current law to allow dog owners to walk through the park with one leashed dog at a time. I can't believe there are communities in our listening area where they don't let you bring your dog to the park. What's more American than that? Uh, this is a report from uh, Fox 5 here in New York and New Jersey and their coverage of this fan wood ban 
on dogs and all pets in the park. The sign in the park actually says no pets, which is there a law against bringing a goldfish to that park? Because I have a goldfish at home that's just itching to get into the park right now. It's the biggest issue in Fanwood, New Jersey right now. The fact that its parks are pet free. Every dog has their day and it looks like today is ours. A problem so divisive, residents are lobbying the mayor and town council to change the 20-year-old ban. Four years ago, we got a Havanese puppy, Lola. She's the best decision we ever made. However, walking her can be stressful. A dog is a member of your family. To me, my dog is my child. I treat her as such. I love her as such. Chapter 118, Section 23 looks to amend the current law to allow owners to walk through the park one dog at a time on a leash. Dogs would not be allowed on any of the sports areas or the playground. This is a huge change from the no dogs on parkland at any time for any reason. When I got my dog four years ago, I was quite surprised that I wasn't allowed to take her to the park. Here's the interesting thing. Nobody really knows how many of the town's 6,000 residents are actually opposed to dogs in parks or why the ordinance was enacted in the first place. It's either been accepted as fact or totally ignored for the last 20 years, unless a concerned neighbor alerts police. But residents say while police are fielding calls about FIDO, FIDO's dodging traffic. A lot of our streets, especially where I live, don't have sidewalks, and it's very dangerous to do that, and we're ducking vehicular traffic for our pets. There will be another public hearing and ultimately a vote on July the 18th. If what we heard tonight is any indication, this measure is expected to pass. In Fanwood, New Jersey, Teresa Priolo, Fox 5 News. I'll tell you, I do not understand this one bit. I don't understand how this ban came to be. I don't understand how it's been in place for 20 years. And I don't understand how the dog owners of this community, all of them, aren't up in arms. In my view, this is crazy. Banning dogs from parks? Now, responsible dog ownership? Absolutely. Keep the dog on a leash. Uh, pick up after your dog. Uh, f- you know, if they don't, if somebody doesn't pick up after the dog, find them like crazy. Absolutely. But the fact that a community in our listening area actually prohibits dogs from parks, that's like banning mom apple pie in the flag. It's crazy. 800-848-WABC. That's uh, 800-848-9222. If you want to comment on anything we've covered, including the ban on dogs in parks, uh, you're welcome to uh, call in or the debate, whatever you want to comment on. 800-848-9222. Coming up in about 20 minutes, we'll do the $1,000 minute. Let me say hello to Irene in central New Jersey. Hello, Irene. Hi, Frank. Um I agree with you 100% that uh, the dogs in the park um, should go to any park. As long as they're on a leash and you pick up after them, there's no problem with that. It's all 100% American. And I also wanted to comment about your poor cat. Um, I had my cat, Daisy, and um, she also, for 10 months, had the exact same symptoms, everything that your beloved cat is having. And I did find a vet that um, does a, did a simple blood test for cancer screening in the intestinal area. So you should ask your vet perhaps if they can do that, if they do it in their facility. Hmm. And they immediately told me that she had um, stage 5 lymphoma Ooh. in oh, the boy. intestines. And they were able and to tell that with the blood test? 
with the blood test. Well, yes, uh, yeah, but they see, sent it out to a lab. It came back in two days. She already and they said that she's already had extensive blood tests. But you think maybe that's one blood test that they didn't do when they were testing her for thyroid issues and diabetes and everything else? Absolutely, because I didn't know about this test. And then one of the doctors there suggested it. And this was at a big facility, Red Bank Vets in New Jersey, famous place, famous place. And um, they said that, you know, she had lost uh, three quarters of her weight and she was still like your cat acting normally, everything going about her routines. And they told me that she had four weeks and she lived up until the fourth week. Mm. And when she was very sick, the last 24 hours, um, I took her to the vet and we were going to put her to sleep. And as soon as we got to the vet, she went out on her own. Uh, well, that, that's sad. I'm sorry. I know. Uh, I know how painful that must have been. And I'm sorry about that. She was 16 and a half, you know. And um, now I have her daughter, my last cat, and um, you know, it's like losing a child. And I've had many cats, and I have all their ashes with me in little boxes in my room. So I understand that, but I just wanted to offer that as another Thank suggestion. you. I, I appreciate that. I'll, I'll make sure my wife's aware of that. Thank you, Irene, and uh, so, sorry again for your loss. 800-848-WABC, talking about the story out of Fanwood, New Jersey, where the borough may end their 20-year habit of saying... No dogs allowed. As far as I'm concerned, this is crazy. Now, again... I'm not suggesting that we send the borough of Fanwood to the dogs. Under this proposal, dogs would not be permitted in certain areas, including baseball fields, basketball courts, children play areas. Under this proposal, dogs that are aggressive or bark excessively or are a nuisance, they're they're going to be removed from the parks. Dog owners who bring their pets to the parks are required to remove all feces deposited by animals. Additionally, any dog that has had a documented incident of an attack or a bite of a person or repeated violations shall be permanently prohibited from entry into Fanwood Parks. To me, this strikes me as very responsible. What do you think? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. I'd especially love to hear from people that actually live in Fanwood. Uh, you can also email me at frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Hey, there was one other quick story that I had intended to mention earlier, and I'm very pleased at uh, at this story. You know, Paramount Plus, they have this uh, – Paramount Plus is a streaming network – I feel like it's one of the 10 streaming networks that I'm paying for. And they have some good stuff on there. I watch Star Trek Picard on there. I watch uh, a few different shows on there, whatever. I don't remember. I, 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 You know, I don't remember what's what. Now, the way these TVs are, you just talk into your remote and you say, play Star Trek, the animated series, and it comes up. Uh, that new show, The Offer, which is all about the making of The Godfather, I haven't seen that yet, but that's on there. People seem to really enjoy that. But Bob Backish... The head of Paramount, the CEO of Paramount, has said he does not want to remove historic programs from his subscription streaming service because they no longer meet current expectations. Isn't this a relief? 
in the era of people rushing to censor things, in the era of people rewriting cinematic and, as we've covered previously, even pro-wrestling history on the WWE Network, isn't this so nice to be able to hear somebody say, we're not touching our movies? So Bob Backish uh, said his company had thousands of shows in its back catalog. By definition, you have some things that were made in a different time and reflect different sensibilities. I don't believe in censoring art that was made historically. That's probably a mistake. It's all on demand. You don't have to watch anything you don't want to. That was music to my ears. You don't have to watch anything you don't want to. I'd say all these CEOs could take a clue from this guy, a cue from this guy. I completely agree. These streaming companies, they've struggled with how to adapt to modern cultural expectations when it comes to older shows. The Disney Channel is the perfect example of this. They have warning after warning. Try and watch um, uh, Dumbo. Forget about it. You can't watch it without the whole thing being censored practically. So I think this guy is exactly right. No one's forcing you to watch anything you don't want to watch. Uh, all right. You want to comment on this or the Fanwood dog situation, whatever, uh, you can do so. 1-800-848-WABC. I am actually surprised that there aren't more people commenting uh, on this Fanwood Park dog ban. Maybe, that, you know, they ask, how does a ban like this stay in place for 20 years? It's because people sit by idly while bans like this Exist. 800-848-9222. Alice is in South Jersey. Hello, Alice. Yes, I just tuned in. I never listened to your program. Now, about the cats. Well, uh, how come you never listen, Alice? That's my personal reason. Okay, but, uh, you know, I don't get up that early. Okay. Um, I go to work. Sorry? You broke up there a second. Um, uh, I believe uh, Curtis Lieber's wife is involved with the animals, and perhaps she might have a suggestion for you. All right. I appreciate the advice there, Alice. Thank you. Joe is in Queens. Hello, Joe. Yes, Frank. It's interesting you brought up the uh, cat thing with possible cancer because I just happen to be looking at a YouTube video on Dandelion Root, and they suggested giving that to either cats or dogs for cancer uh, on a YouTube video. Uh, but they do sell dandelion herbs, you know, so we could just look for that YouTube video or, you know, dandelion specifically. And then I had a question for you. You mentioned overeating. Uh, what do you observe in terms of overeating when you're at, like, these places like Atlantic City? Are you talking about well, for hu- humans or animals? Oh, oh, uh, for both, I think. But but the particular video was for the guy that was suggesting a concoction of dandelion root. No, no. For... When you talk about, are you asking about overeating among pets or humans? Humans, humans, yeah. Humans. Okay. Um, I don't know. You know, I don't really pay. I don't really pay too close attention to what other people are eating. I'll be honest. I, uh, I kind of. Do you know. see people being uh, gluttons? Like uh, I'm sure I have, but you know, I guess I'm more focused on my own meal and uh, my own companion. I don't know that I pay much attention to what everybody else is eating. Right, right. Because because you 
wanders that environment triggers like a willpower. Say someone has does bad at the casino that day, and then they just gorge themselves well, on food. I, I'm sure it does, you know Joe. I mean? I'm sure it does. But I'll be honest. While obesity is a problem for everybody, my biggest concern is about about this trend in children. We're not only uh, thank you for the call, Joe. Not only are we seeing, as I said earlier, obesity essentially triple in the last 30 years among children, but we're seeing physical activity decline. And at least according to this report out of the University of Georgia, part of the reason for that physical decline is because fewer kids are having a rigorous physical education. You know, I'm reading this book now about uh, Theodore Roosevelt. It's a wonderful book. Uh, I'll tell you about it when I when I finish it. I, and I've, I've inter- I interviewed the author many years ago, but I may have to have him back. It's a great book. But um, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, from the time he was a child, Theodore Roosevelt was a uh, very sickly child, and his father and him were rigorous adherents to something called the strenuous life, where Theodore Roosevelt believes that strenuous effort and overcoming hardship were ideals to be embraced by Americans for the betterment of the whole country and the whole world. And he said so in a speech while he was governor of New York, actually. And you look at where we've come in the last 120 years, we've gone from Governor Theodore Roosevelt embracing the strenuous life to schools cutting back on physical education. It seems like we've got our priorities all out of whack, and children are the ones that are suffering. Look, if you're an adult and you want to eat to excess, uh, fine. I, I'm overweight, I'll be honest, and uh, I, I'm not. You can make your own decisions as an adult. But if a child is denied the opportunity because of um, of, of physical activity, and they're less active than they were two years ago, three years ago, five years ago, ten years ago, then we're really, as a society, failing children. And I don't think there's any excuse for that. 800-848-WABC. You want to comment on the debate. You want to comment on this fanwood ban. Uh, you want to comment on, uh, you know, the whatever else that we've been covering throughout the course of the last three and a half hours. The metaverse, you're welcome to. 800-848-9222. Open lines, essentially. Sherman is in Manhattan. Hello, Sherman. Hello, Frank. It's very nice to talk to you. I'd like to talk to you about two topics. First, uh, in terms of... Uh, why kids are obese, why they're not uh, exercising and taking physical activity. It's the luxury of the spoiled life that we have with the computers, with your phone, with these big TVs in front of you. They are hypnotizing people. So it's very difficult for you to get up from in front of a TV when you have all this access at your disposal, from normal TV to all kinds of uh, adult-rated stuff. So it's, it, that's a big issue. Uh, that's a huge issue. And so I think that parents need to get a little more strict and just, you know, stop trying to be friends with your child and say, you know, there's a certain amount of time you can watch TV, there's a certain amount of time you're not. There's a certain amount of time you can use your phone, your computer, a certain amount of time you're not. You're going to do some physical activities. You've got to walk around the block nine times. So that's the first thing. I grew up in Canarsie. I played football. I had a skateboard. I had bicycles. I used to walk along the freight tracks uh, uh, with my friends. And, and so we did a lot of stuff, you know. But, again, I didn't grow up with uh, – you know, with laptops and, 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 you know, large screen TVs. But still in all, we, we, I grew up in a culture where people 
uh, respected you when you were athletic, when you uh, knew how to play a little basketball, you can ride a skateboard. Now it's, it's different. People want to have friends online, and they think that that's enough. And so that's the problem. The second thing I want to say to you, uh, I live in, in, in Harlem, and we have outstanding uh, animal doctors over here. There's an animal place right on Lenox Avenue. It's called animal, uh, Harlem Animal Hospital, uh, 193 Lenox Avenue. You can, you can Google it, look it up. I highly recommend you and your wife go over there one day and visit these doctors. There are two outstanding uh, female doctors there. I have uh, two cats. One passed away. I'm not going to, you know, you cry your river about that. I'm going to keep everything positive. I have another cat, a black cat named Mimi. I love her. She sleeps on top of me when I go to sleep. So I'm saying to you, the prices are outrageous. It's a form of blackmail, highway robbery. I highly recommend that people get more tough with these places in terms of the prices. This place that I'm talking about, the prices are reasonable. And I'm, and I'm very surprised about that, but they're reasonable. And it's an outstanding place. You can Google it. Harlem Animal House was on Lenox Avenue. Uh, so, um, yes, these places are outrageous. The prices are ridiculous. It's absurd. Uh, well, Sherman, great call. Thank you. Uh, on the first aspect of things, I, I just want to be very clear. The, the troubling trend based on this new article from the University of Georgia is that it's a culture in these schools that's promoting sedentary lifestyle. A decline in um, things like physical education and gym classes and just a, a climate in the schools that's not conducive and supportive of greater physical activity. 800-848-WABC uh, open lines come in on anything that we've covered over the course of the last three hours and uh, in 20 minutes. Meantime, uh, we are going to do the $1,000 minute coming up in about uh, about 10 minutes or so. And if you want to email me in the meantime, I've got a, I'm getting a lot of helpful emails today on a lot of the issues we've discussed. You can do so at frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. I'll tell you who I had a good, a good uh, email exchange with today. Julian Assange's brother. And I was working on getting Julian Assange on the show this morning, but uh, we weren't able to make the schedules work. Uh, but we're going to make we're going to try for tomorrow to have his brother on the show tomorrow to talk about what's happening uh, with Julian Assange's case, because I think it's a travesty. I think it's an absolute travesty. And I think they're essentially criminalizing journalism. And uh, we're going to be headed down a dangerous path if that's the case. So hopefully he'll join me. But even if he's not available tomorrow, we'll we'll chat about what exactly is happening with his case. Meantime, uh, 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Steve in New Jersey. Hello, Steve. Yeah, how you doing? I just wanted to make a comment on the boy that was burned. Uh, as far as the GoFundMe, I don't think it would have generated as much money if the story was out there that the boy sort of caused his own uh, uh, burns as it did by uh, people donating the money, I believe, because they heard that another boy burnt this boy, not on purpose, but that's the way it happened. So I think the, the fund me probably... Uh, generated more money because people oh, were oh completely in that respect absolutely no doubt about it and i think they should take the money instead of returning it to the people and put a pool in the backyard and uh, these kids wouldn't play with fire and they could uh, do some swimming and get physical activity and they won't become obese well they did mo- thank you steve they did move out of the house where this uh, this incident took place so i think that's you know that's not necessarily going to happen. 800-848-9222. Peter is in the Bronx. Hello, Peter. 
Hey, Frank. So uh, what New York City School does with, with gym classes, they cut the classes to once a week because they double block um, math classes and ELA classes. And that started a while ago because they wanted the uh, state test, uh, test scores to go up. So um, kids would have a total of four periods of day, uh, four periods a day of combined of math and ELA. That's almost half the day. Mm. I mean, that's and, that's awful. Yeah. So classes like, you know, woodshop, the vocational classes, phys ed, which I taught, um, art, music, they're they're cut down to, you know, maybe once a week. And when I taught, it was, you know, once a week and you would have, you know, 150 kids in the gym with, you know, four teachers. So even when they got gym, it was uh, chaotic. So basically, that, that's what the schools do in, in the city. Yeah. Well, that's a shame. Well, I, I, evidently. And thanks for the call, Peter. Uh, evidently, according to this research from the University of Georgia, it's not unique to New York. It's going on all over the place. And they say that's one of the causes here. It's not like uh, kids don't want to be active or just sitting around being lazy. There's now a culture in these schools that dis- essentially discourages physical activity. And the lack of gym classes is a big part of it. And that's uh, very, very disconcerting, I must say. Evelyn is in Hudson County. Hello, Evelyn. Oh, Frank, nice to hear your voice. And I hope that the air, your airtime doesn't go off again like yesterday, which was a disaster for Thank me. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Who depends on you? Uh, Frank, how much time do you think uh, elementary school children should get for gym? Well, this, this, this study is, I think, focusing on teenagers, ninth through 12th grade. But as far as – look, I'm not an expert. I don't know what the experts recommend. But I would think at least three or four times a week would be appropriate. Frank, we get 45 minutes per class per week. You're kidding that's me. That's a disgrace. That is no, a disgrace. I'm serious, Frank. It's a disgrace. And my own city, I live in Bayonne, invited my school in Jersey City to participate in track in Bayonne. And the amount of interest generated was amazing by both the children and the parents. And we had children, they had to go to practices every Saturday. It went on for about two and a half months. And it was terrific. Well, that's and great I that they would. That, that's great that they do that. And uh, I'm sorry to hear about the situation in your school district, but uh, I, I'm glad that uh, children and parents were quick to respond to that uh, that invitation to participate from uh, from Jersey City. Yes, one other school. One other thing, Frank, real quickly. One of the uh, girls, old eighth grader, asked me to call the mother to get her to pick her up. She was a little bit late coming to pick her up. I said, well, where do you live? And she says, just two blocks away. I said, you don't want to walk two blocks if your mother gives you permission? Two blocks was too much, Frank. (laughs) That is crazy. Uh, Thank you, Evelyn. Uh, Roger is in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Hello, Roger. Yeah, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, Just, just, uh, I want to briefly touch on three of your your earlier subjects. Uh, Number one, uh, diesel exhaust fluid which uh, is injected into the hot exhaust, is made up of, um, to help break it up, uh, 65% purified cow urine and 35% purified water. Really? The second sub- I didn't know. Yeah, the second, su- yeah, the second subject about uh, uh, school athletics, when you were talking about that, I thought to myself, uh-oh, well, I think athletic fields and schoolyards should be looked upon as being protected just as much as schools. I hope people are thinking about that. The school buildings themselves, 
or any kind of, you know. Agreed. Agreed. And, and number three, you, I turned uh, turn the radio on, and you were discussing about the, the, uh, the video, a video regarding the boy the, the, in Bridgeport that was burned. Um, what, this video just came out. The incident happened in however long right, in April. and the video just came out well, yeah as i said the the uh the mother who released the video publicly is saying that the police asked her to refrain from releasing it until they had finished their investigation wow that's what that's what she wow. said now i i can't say that she's telling the truth but that's what she's claiming roger thank oh. you for the call hey uh if you want to try and win a thousand dollars you don't have to go to a gofundme page and make up a made-up story you can just be the seventh caller to 1-800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. And if you are indeed the seventh caller, you're going to have an opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you can answer them correctly, you'll win $1,000. Simple as that. So go ahead and be the seventh caller right now to 1-800-848-9222, and then we'll play the $1,000 minute straight ahead. WABC. One look at you, and it was plain to see you were my destiny. With arms open wide, I threw away my pride. I sacrificed for you, dedicate my life to you. I'll be the way you live, always there in time of need. Oh, 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 when I lose the will, you'll be there to bring me up the hill. And no, no Love this song. You're all I need to get by. Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. Uh, a, a wonderful, wonderful song. And the inspiration for a lot of other um, covers of this song, including one that Johnny Mathis did, I think, in the 70s. And then in the 90s, Method Man and Mary J. Blige did a song that was similar to this. I don't think it was the same lyrics, but it was similar to this. And uh, it's just a great song. I, for whatever reason, this song was... Stuck in my head the other day, and I couldn't help but hum it to myself all day long. And uh, this, even uh, what a uh, fifty years after its um, its its uh, recording, it still is just very, very moving. All right, eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. If you want to comment on anything we are talking about, you're going to want to stay tuned to the Bernie and Sid show from six until ten. It was great to hear the boss, John Katsimatidis, in for Sid Rosenberg yesterday. But now everybody's back where they belong. Today, uh, you're going to get to hear Bruce Blakeman, the Nassau County Executive, at 740. And uh, you get to hear former Congressman Peter King at 840. And uh, I'm sure that uh, those are both going to be worth listening to. Uh, and, of course, the WABC Early News WABC Early News with uh, Deb Valentine from 5 until 6 o'clock this morning. 
Meantime, it is time for one lucky person to try to win some money. The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Uh, It is great to be the aforementioned Frank Murano, and it's great to talk with Kathy in Bronxville. Hello, Kathy. Hi, hi, Frank. How are you? Love your show and love hearing about your beautiful family. Oh, well, that's awfully nice of you. Thank you. Now I'm really rooting for you. <laughs> See, th- this is a good lesson, what Kathy's doing. She's, she says something nice before the contest begins, so now I have a vested interest in helping her out. It's like when I go to Atlantic City and, I pl- and you know, you're always supposed to tip the dealers. What I do usually is, you know, sometimes I'll just give the dealers money, especially if I'm winning. But what I generally prefer to do, especially at the craps table, is instead of just tipping the dealers, I place bets for the dealers. This way, if I win, they win. And I feel like they have a vested interest. That's what Kathy has so wisely done. So, Kathy, oh, I- um, <laughs> you, you're familiar with this game, right? You know how it works? Yes. Okay, great. Yes. So um, the, the timer will begin after the first question. And if you get a question right, we're just going to move on to the next one so that we can try and run through all ten, okay? Okay. All right. What type of license is needed to drive a car? A driver's license. Who did Joe Biden run against in the 2020 presidential election? Uh, Trump. What type of pet do my wife and I have three of? Cat. What communist revolutionary led Cuba for approximately half a century? Castro. What state is Yosemite National Park in? Oh, uh, California. What singer is the godmother of Miley Cyrus? Uh, uh, Dolly Parton. What is the name of the longest side of a right-angled triangle? Can you repeat that? What is the name of the longest side of a right-angled triangle? Isosceles. Uh, no, unfortunately. The isosceles is a type of triangle and a type of right-angled triangle. The longest side of a right-angled triangle is the hypotenuse. The hypotenuse. Okay. Uh, but you did very well. You got up to question seven, um, and uh, and so I'm sorry, but uh, but you did re- really well. Uh, I hope you'll call again. I hope you'll play again. But in the meantime, we're going to give you a complimentary T-shirt. So I'm going to put you on oh, hold and, uh, and give your information to Ryan, if you would, okay? Okay, and I hope your cat does well. Thank you. You and me both. Thank you very much. So uh, that's Kathy in Bronxville. I was really hoping she, she was on a roll there. She got Yosemite. She got Dolly Parton. Yeah, the hypotenuse. It always gets you. Uh, I always think of that song, the uh, Modern Major General, and the, the chorus, kind of the chorus slash refrain, with many cheerful facts about the square of the hypotenuse, right? That's how it goes, right? All right, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on anything we've talked about thus far. And if you uh, don't want to comment on anything, then just keep listening. Uh, I will tell you, in terms of the um, in terms of things that I'm up to, there is. Hang on a sec. Let me grab my notes here. But, but, but. hey, uh, so uh, Kathy mentioned our family, which is very nice. I'm a Met fan, long time 
excuse me, longtime, long-suffering Met fan. Now, this year they tend to be doing pretty well, but you know the inevitable is coming. You know they're headed for heartbreak somewhere along the line. You don't know if it's going to be last year, like last year where they were in first place the entire season, and then they managed to finish the season without even having a winning record. Or um, you don't know if it's going to be in the playoffs, like when Kenny Rogers walked in the game-losing runs, the the game-losing run in uh, 1999, I think it was against the Atlanta Braves, or even maybe in the World Series, like what happened in 2000 against the Yankees, or in uh, 2015 against the Royals. You just you know you don't know what's going to happen, but you know you're headed for heartbreak. That's why I really want the best for my son, and I am hoping that he will not become a Met fan. I would love to save him the heartache and the anguish. Now, there's a chance that he might become a Met fan because I usually have the Met game on. I put the Yankees on too, but, you know, when they're both on at the same time, which is often, I'll have the Met game on. So I'm hoping he doesn't become a Met fan. So a couple of weeks ago, we go to my friend JFK's house for to see his house, meet his fiancée, have a barbecue and so forth. And JFK gifts to my son Carmine a stuffed animal, not just any stuffed animal, mind you, a Mr. Met doll. And all I'm thinking of, oh, don't do this to this kid. Don't encourage any any affinity he might have for the Mets. Because these allegiances get built to baseball teams very early on. I became a Met fan as a child, not for any reason, really, just because I like the uniform. I love the blue and orange. It really appealed to me as a young person. I must have been four, maybe five. I don't know. But so if he starts getting that Met messaging in his brain at such a young age, I'm concerned he will be a Met fan. But he loves this Mr. Met doll. Absolutely loves it. He's carrying it with it all all the time. He's grabbing it. He's just kind of starting now to appreciate stuffed animals. And there are a number of ones that he likes. There's a Mickey Mouse one that he likes. Uh, anything that he can stick in his mouth he really enjoys because he is he is teething. But there's an elephant that he likes, and because he's bipartisan, there's a donkey that he likes. We have a rhinoceros that my friend Dan gave him, but he's still the rhinoceros is still a little too big for him to hold up uh, to grab onto. He likes to grab things and he likes to stick them in his mouth. Those are his favorite two things to do with any toy or stuffed animal. And he loves this Mr. Met. Now, my father and my three siblings and my stepmother all happen to be Yankee fans. And they were, uh, last couple of times that we saw them with Carmine holding this Mr. Met doll, very dismissive of this Mr. Met doll. They would say, my stepmother especially, would say, oh, you know, you don't want to look at him. You don't want to be near him. And I didn't think anything of it. Then today, or yesterday technically, we put my son to bed. My wife says to me, as I was trying to force her to watch the debate, and she wanted to watch anything but the debate, she says to me, have you seen Mr. Met today or yesterday? I said, huh, no, I haven't seen him. 
She said, where'd it go? Did you look in the car? Yes. Was it in the car? No. Did you look in his crib? Yes. Was it in his crib? No. So we were at my dad's house on Sunday. She said to me, do you think your family confiscated this Mr. Met doll? And I said, maybe. Maybe. And she said they would do it. They don't like that he has that Mr. Met. And they don't want to encourage him to be a Met fan. I think he may have been kidnapped. I said, so how do you want to handle this? Uh, You always have to tread lightly with all these familial issues. Especially since we're very dependent upon my dad, who actually knows how to fix things when things go wrong. And we're dependent upon both of them for frequent babysitting and stuff. She says, I don't know, but I'm going to get to the bottom of this. I'm going to conduct a full-scale investigation and find out if they kidnapped Mr. Matt. So that's where we are right now. Mr. Matt is missing, not the actual mascot, but the stuffed animal that uh, that my son plays with. And unfortunately, one of the suspects in this disappearance is my father. It's very, it's very tricky. So hopefully, we're we're hoping not because that I not because I want this young man to grow up to be a Met fan, but because he happens to like this stuffed animal. We are hoping to see Mister Met safely returned to his home in short order. We'll see. Uh, he especially likes Mister Met when I sing the Mister Met theme song to him. Uh, especially the 80s version. He seems to prefer the 80s version to the 60s version. Hey, you know whose birthday it is today? Chris Christofferson, 86 years old, if you could believe that. I am a big Chris Christofferson fan as both an actor and as a singer. You know, I love those songs that he did with uh, Johnny Cash as part of the Highwaymen. So he's 86. I tried to get uh, Chris Christofferson on the show a couple of times. But uh, he was unavailable or unwilling to be awake at uh, this crazy hour. Who can blame him? And it's also uh, Meryl Streep's birthday today. One of the great actors of this or any generation. And it is Cindy Lauper's birthday today, who had um, Captain Lou Albano in her music video way back when. Girls uh, just want to have fun, I think. And uh, she was at the very first WrestleMania, if you could believe that. She is 69 years of age today. And um, you remember Carson Daly, the TV personality? He's still hosting NBC's The Last Call of um, The Last Call with Carson Daly. And apparently he's on The Voice as well. He was a big deal in the days of Total Request Live. And uh, it's his birthday today as well. He always is one of those guys that seems eternally youthful. But he is, uh, he's 49 today. Yeah, 49. He's on the Today Show. Oh, he's on the Today Show? Yeah. Is he still doing Last Call, though? Uh, that I'm not sure. I think they might have, that ended. You think it ended? I think Last Call ended. I have to check on it. All right. Well, I can't, uh, I can't speak to that. So we'll see. All right, 800-848-WABC. And it's uh, my friend Bonnie's birthday today, a very good friend 
works at the uh, New York City Board of Elections. Uh, Bonnie Bibula, I married her grandson because I am a licensed wedding officiant. was happy to do it. And uh, she's married to my friend Joel, who's uh, a terrific guy in his own right. All right. Uh, we'll do 15 seconds of fame in just a minute. And if you want to comment on uh, anything for 15 seconds, you can give us a call, 800-848-9222. John is in upstate New York. Hello, John. How you doing, Frank? Uh, I'm well, John. John, did Ryan ask you to turn your radio off? Yeah, hang on a second. Wait, wait, so, so he did ask you? No, he didn't ask Oh, me. he did not I ask you. Okay, off. got it. Okay. Um, I've talked to you before. I got a baseball signed to me at the age of 13. I'm 66. Says best wishes to John Joe DiMaggio. Wow, it's worth nothing. Okay. Okay. Now I've talked to you before. You said you wanted to offer me a couple of bucks. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll give you twenty bucks for it. No, get out of here, Frankie. Well, if it's worth <laughs> nothing, then then twenty bucks I is know. pretty good. It's just sentimental. Yeah. You no. know. Absolutely. Well, enjoy that ball. Uh, that's uh, something that cannot be replaced. That's for sure. Absolutely. Believe me, uh, as Absolutely. I found out by giving my Mickey Mantle ball to Ron Kuby. Oh, what a mistake. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you said it. You're exactly right. Thank you, John. Oh, sorry, I didn't realize you had another comment there. Hey, we'll do 15 seconds of fame next. If you want have a question, if you have a comment, a question, a thought, uh, and you want to be heard for 15 seconds, you can do so at 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. W-A-B-C. make this a whole big thing, but um, Ukraine has again banned a opposition political party. Uh, I mean, you know, fine, you know, it's terrible that they were um, that they were invaded by Russia, but they're banning this this political party now. I mean, how many political parties does Ukraine have to ban? How many media outlets do they have to shut down before Western media stops referring to these guys, the Zelensky government in Ukraine, as a as a democracy? Ukraine is not a democracy. So they have banned the opposition platform for life party, OPFL. Uh, that is traditionally lar- uh, Ukraine's largest pro-Russian political party from operating within the country. This is not a democracy. 
people should stop saying that it is for my money. Hey, uh, you know, we're going to do 15 seconds of fame in just a moment. And the thing with 15 seconds of fame is you can use it for whatever you want, really, whatever you want. So recently, one guy called in yesterday and as is typical with 15 seconds of fame, he said something that I completely did not understand. It sounded like some weird tongues or something. And evidently, that is my friend Brian Silverstein's friend's father. And he was trying to pass on a secret message through 15 seconds of fame. That's what's so great about 15 seconds of fame. You can you can pass on a message that only one person gets. You know, on that show Time Tracks that I was talking about a while ago, um, they used to he used to leave clues in the future by placing personal ads that had clues as to what was going to happen. You could do that with 15 seconds of fame, and you could be none the wiser. You can also just say something substantive or ask a question, whatever the case may be. However you want to do it, you can do it. Just for make sure it's 15 seconds or less, as we do on each and every edition of... Other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. Janine is in Westchester. Hello, Janine. Hi, Frank. Good morning. Listen, tomorrow the World Health Organization may, in fact, declare yet another pandemic because of this monkeypox thing, and they may say they have the power to shut down the entire world. Hopefully it won't happen, but it may. I don't know. Worst comes to worst, we all get a few days off. Charles in Queens. Yeah, in 1972, I think it was, I predicted that Joel Grey from Cabaret was going to win Best Supporting Actress instead of one of the three guys from The Godfather. The same way I believe that Andrew Giuliani is going to win, it's going to benefit him by being one and the other three on the other side. Chris in the Catskills. Assembly District 103, vote for Kevin Cahill. Between now and early voting, a vote for Kevin Cahill is standing up to the socialists and standing up to the dirty mailers from the Working Families Party. Sean in Park Ridge. I uh, once had a student that used to play with a Mr. Met doll, and he loved it, and I brought him to a Met game, and I arranged for him to meet Mr. Met, and he was terrified when he met him. <laughs> it was hysterical. Fred in Yonkers. Hey, Frank. One of my favorite quotes of all time came from Chris Christopherson to Sinead O'Connor, and it goes like this. Don't let the bastards get you down. Mike in the Poconos. Top of the morning, Frank. Uh, last week I had to go to Scranton, Pennsylvania, and I take this highway, and I see an arrow or a little expressway. My Google goes out. I get on the expressway, and what is it? The Joe Biden expressway. I said to myself, what? Get me the freak out of here. I had to take the next exit off this damn expressway. Jim in Brooklyn. Uh, let me make a, two quick points. Number one, if you want to go commercial fishing or parasailing or a Hobart beach when the creature is there, you can't. And when he ends his talks by saying, may God protect our military, may God protect them from you. Salvatore in Whitestone. No, you know what I want to know? I want to know why uh, our mayor does not enforce the law anymore. I think someone should look into that, and I think God should look into it right now. Pete in Brooklyn. Hey, I want to say hello to Joe Bono and Uncle Phil. Sit your jerk off, sit your jerk off, sit your jerk Mike in St. James. Weren't we supposed to cripple the economy of Russia for invading Ukraine? Uh, by the way, on that front, 
The Russian ruble, in terms of its value, it's now at a seven-year high. I guess those sanctions aren't all they're cracked up to be. Sheesh. Hey, uh, that's it for me. Slams the lid on things for today. Frank Moreno, good day.